Welcome back, Panastorians. It's been a, it's been a minute, I guess. Uh, I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. And uh, we're here to talk to you today about the Persian Gulf War. The first one. Or Not, the third. Technically, it's like the... Yeah. <laughs> it's the only one that's called the Gulf War, though. Yeah. In, uh, officially. Well, yeah. I'll talk about... I, we, we, I, I at least talk about the terminology of the Gulf Wars. So. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's known by a bunch of different names, probably depending on the country that you're in as well, but generally it's known as... The Persian, Gulf the Persian Gulf War, or it's shortened to the Gulf War. Or Desert Storm. Or Desert Storm, that too. want to refer to it as the American operation. So anywho, that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, Just a quick... It's couple. a lot. Yeah, it, um, we definitely had some an interesting time researching this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because there's some bits where it's like, where does it end? Yeah, yeah. And you, you, could, you could say it never did. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was it? Well, like the First World War being a, a ceasefire for 20 years, mm. it's pretty much the same as all of these conflicts we're going to talk about, because we're not just talking about the one. Yeah, no. So, I guess with that in mind, should we just dive in? I guess we should Wait, just... We'll, we'll, do, we'll do the housekeeping. Oh, yeah. And then we, and then I guess we, we have some additions to fuckfaces. We sure do. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, I guess we'll... Should we do some housekeeping in that episode, or do the housekeeping at the end? Let's do some housekeeping now. So, very quickly... Um, it's going to be the last episode for a fair bit. We got some stuff both in our personal lives to take care of and podcast-wise, I got some stuff to take care of. I'm trying to get a new series for Patreon going. There's going to be a new episode on Thursday, March 4th for those of you who are subscribed to Patreon. It is a interview with a woman who is a adult content creator. I'll just leave it at that because you have to subscribe and listen because it was actually a fantastic episode and she did an amazing job. So yeah, thanks to her for joining that. That's awesome of her. Yeah, it was it was great. Like I said in the episode, I asked her and she like imme- almost immediately said yes. That's awesome. She was just like, yeah, sure. And she did an amazing job in the episode. So I'm very pumped about it and you should guys should go listen to it. For those of you who missed out on trivia... You definitely missed out. It was a lot of fun. We had a good time with all of our guests, and we're going to try and do it monthly here. So we're a little bit more monthly. Or, yeah, monthly. So hopefully this coming March, probably around the 23rd or so, we'll try yeah. and do we'll try and do some trivia. So stay tuned for that. But other than that, I think that's, that's all for now. So Pretty much. Kevin is super excited to talk about Desert Storm. I don't know why. doesn't mention dinosaurs, but, you know. He loves he loves it I when mean, his people are around. His brethren must have roamed that area if there's so much oil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh goodness me! So I'm good to go. Kevin is giving me some stink right now. <laughs> the shade, yeah. the shade, the shade yeah, he is throwing. Don't mention the O word in front of him. For an Alberta dinosaur, he is. Yeah. <laughs> Salty. Oh yeah. So I guess to start, we're gonna. We're going to go way, 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 way back in a, in a I sense. I guess content warning. This episode's going to be real long. <laughs> it is going to be long. So bear with us. But you guys don't seem to mind it. So I have to explain. There is an ideology that was used in Iraq. It is currently used in Syria. It is Syria is actually the last country that is under such an ideology. It is called Baathism. I, until this episode, thought it was Baathism, but no. It's, it's, it's Baathism. It is an ideology built on the trauma of Western imperialism in the Middle East, which there's a lot of trauma of Western imperialism 
in the Middle East. Much. And Africa. Much. And North America. Yeah. And South Africa. Anyway. It is a blend of Marxist ideology with Arab nationalism. So the creators of Baathism considered the class struggle to be between all Arab peoples against Western imperialists. Baathism calls for the creation of a united Arab state under a republic. Baathist socialism differs from Western socialism in that Baathists believe the state would mediate the distribution of wealth to ensure all got an equal amount. This also called for the nationalization of major industries, particularly oil. Baathism was largely secular regarding all religions and their followers as equal. So they weren't anti-religious or wanting state, state atheism. They wanted state secular, secularism. While having many left-wing stances, Baathism also shares similarity with Italian fascism. In fact, that's where the creators of this ideology got their inspiration from. So for example, they both have a sense of unity through nationalism, physically unite through language, culture, and history, and both were dictatorships. <laughs> it's difficult to classify and is seen as more as of a syncretic ideology since it uses aspects of both the left and the right. So there are people who will argue it's a right-wing ideology. There are those who will argue it's a left-wing ideology. The truth is they're both correct because it doesn't, it's not as clear-cut as, say, fascism or communism or, so, or socialism or Nazism or stuff like that. Splinters within the Ba'athist movement began during the 1960s, specifically between the Syrian and Iraqi branches. Iraqi Ba'athism, or Saddamism, as it is now known as, emphasized the role of the military in uniting the Arab world by driving the imperialists from the Middle East, as well as to bring about the destruction of Israel. Kind of sounds a little bit like Nazism. You think? <laughs> to many in the Arab world, Israel is, was seen as yet another form of Western imperialism as it was created and imposed by the Western powers. Yeah. When Hafez al-Assad, who is the father of Bashir al-Assad, who's the current, you know, dictator-in-chief dic dictator of Syria. When he took power in 1970, a new form of Baathism formed in what is now known commonly as Assadism, also known as Neo-Baathism. Mm -hmm. Al-Assad aimed to make himself the face of Baathism and Arab unity. This led to the split between the Syrian and Iraqi branches, the two largest factions of the movement. Saddam saw himself as the face, while al-Assad did the same. Both became bitter rivals in their existence, I suppose. In short, the other differences between the two branches was ideology. So the Syrian branch can be considered more a left-wing Baathism, emphasis on social, like socialist policies to a certain extent. And... The Iraqi branch can be considered right-wing Baathism, much like how the Italian fascist party had left-wing and right-wing elements within its party. I mean, they were still both on the far right, but there were those who emphasized actually actual socialist policies like welfare even. But, you know, for a particular select few people, yeah. same with Baathism. Mm -hmm. So like in Iraq, they are for like these social programs for uh, Iraqi Arabs. Not so much for the Kurds or the Assyrians or the Jewish Iraqi population, as you'll find out. Mm -hmm. 
Baathism's other main rival was that that of the socialist pan-Arab ideology of Nasserism, named after Egyptian President Gamal Nasser. Nasserism was also anti-imperialist and pan-Arabist and secular, also arguing for a united Arab republic. The major difference between Nasserism and Baathism was that the former did not emphasize nationalism in its ideology, instead focusing on socialist and anti-imperialist aspects. They wanted like a, a united Arab state more based around geography rather than ethnicity, whereas Baathism was more about the Arab ethnicity. Mm. Hope hope this is making sense to you people, because I got to tell you, it took a long time to figure out about this ideology because it was tough. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, not that straightforward. It would, you can really tell which side of the spectrum people who were writing about this were on just based on, oh, it's a terrible socialist ideology. It's like, okay. But then I finally found this really great video that explained it in... Neutral terms? Yeah. And <laughs> and it's basically like, look, it's both left and right wing because they use elements of both. both. And it's and so many different elements of both that you can't classify it classify it as left wing or right wing. Hmm. This is maybe a stupid comparison, but I guess does it make it a little bit like anarchism in a way where it's very like large and all? I mean, I would say anarchism you could definitely point as being left wing, but like it's got a lot of like elements to it. Like there's so many different yeah, elements to it. You can definitely argue it, but if you ask me personally, like, I, I would don't... not just say that Baathism is anarchism. I just mean it's like similar. In similar the sense, in the sense, yeah, of, of it being kind of syncretic. And, yeah. If you were to, I, I think you can argue that yes, it is. But um, with me, anarchism is not syncretic. It is definitely a left-wing ideology. Yeah. But that's because I don't accept anarcho-capitalism as anarchy. Yeah. And I would say that that's probably the case but i just it's probably the most similar example of any kind of like cla- quote unquote classic ideology I yeah think, to me yeah i uh, yeah i think you could definitely pin- i think you could definitely pinpoint it as no being I, I i understand i don't yeah. necessarily agree that that's the case but yeah. yeah i can definitely see why those comparisons could be drawn yeah. i just can't think of a better ideology at this point same like that's where i'm at like i don't think it's a good fit but i think it's like maybe the closest the least worst comparison. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Baathism described as Arab National Socialism, but I don't think that's even. I mean, and Saddamism. That's... And Saddamism, yeah, yeah, can be more argued, but I, I think there's enough differences between the, the two. Yeah. But yeah, but no, I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Let us know what you think in the comments. So, are you understanding? <laughs> I just probably started a dumpster fire, but oh. here we are. So Saddam Hussein was born Saddam Hussein Abd al-Majid al-Tikrit. That took me a long time to try and get that down. He was born on April 28, 1937 in Al-Ajua village located along the Tigris River. Village huts were literally made out of mud and fire was fueled by cow dung. No, there was no electricity and no running water in the area. So it was a... it was tough. Not the best place. No. His father, Hussein al-Majid, disappeared shortly after Saddam's birth. Now, I can't find a single similar like, reason why he disappeared. Some say he was murdered by bandits, which is actually pretty plausible yeah. at, around that time. Because yeah. was, it was a bit major thing in the rural areas. Because, you know, mm-hmm. pro-Western government didn't really give a shit. It seems, it seems reasonable, yeah. Well, others say he he simply abandoned the family, which, let's be honest, it, it, it's reasonable. probably also reasonably. But 
However, another source I found stated that he died of cancer prior to Saddam's birth. So, yeah, it's... I mean, in theory, all three of them are plausible, so who knows? Yeah, for sure, exactly. It's just there, there's no written record on what... Yeah. Uh, no official written record on what happened to him. And it depends on who you ask. So, all three are... It's Schrodinger's Saddam. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Panastory episode without a really bad joke, but... Or some kind of Schrodinger's dilemma. Yeah. I feel like we bring it up in almost every episode. <laughs> Saddam's mother was heartbroken when her husband disappeared or died. And reportedly attempted to abort her pregnancy and even commit suicide while pregnant with Saddam. When Saddam was born, she refused to take care of him and he was brought up by an uncle. Yeah, Saddam had a really shit life growing up. Mm-hmm. So... In the whole nature versus nurture debate, like Saddam was definitely a bad person, and it seems to me like he had the the background of a terrible person. Yeah, like he <laughs> he's what he's an example of someone who had the empathy beaten out of him. Yeah, I'm not saying that's that's it's not I'm, a justification. No, but it's at least an explanation. It's an explanation, not an excuse. Yeah. Obviously, Saddam's mother remarried when he was three, and he was returned to her. However, his stepfather was known to be cruel towards Saddam. At age 10, Saddam ran away to Baghdad and settled with his uncle, and mis- forgive me for this pronunciation, Kariala Talifa, and it's not the same uncle as before. Talifa, or Talfa was a military veteran, and hearing of his experiences inspired Saddam to pursue a military career. However, Saddam was a poor student and lacked required grades to be accepted into the Baghdad Military Academy. Therefore, he enrolled at the Karch Secondary School, where he was exposed to the Ba'athist movement for the very first time. By this point, in the, which is the 1950s, the Ba'athists were conspiring against the Iraqi monarchy of Faisal II. Unfortunately for them, another group beat them to the punch when General Abd al-Karim Qasim overthrew the monarchy with the help of the military. Qasim became popular with the Iraqi people, but the Ba'athists distrusted him because of his cooperation with the Communist Party. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, even the Ba'athists didn't really like communists because they, and this seems to be a regular thing because they viewed the communists as more loyal to the Soviet Union than internally. That makes sense. Yeah. Saddam, now 20 years old, was recruited by the Ba'athists as part of a six-man assassination squad, and they attempted to kill Kasim. On October 7th, 1959, the six opened fire on Kasim's car, killing the driver but only managing to wound Kasim in the arm. Believing him to be dead, the assassins retreated. Saddam was also wounded in the leg during the attack. By the way, I'm going to refer to him, I should have mentioned this before, I'm going to refer to him as Saddam. I know, like most of the time, you pronounce like you say the last name when you're explaining this. But I'm gonna, I'm just calling him Saddam because, well, there's another Hussein in this episode. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. Following the failed attack, Saddam fled into Syria and later to Egypt. There, he mingled with the likes of actually Gamal Nasser. He was also associated with other Arab nationalists who were students at the University of Cairo, which was across the street from his apartment. In Cairo, he married Sajida Talfa. In 1963, Qasim was finally assassinated by the Ba'athists, and a violent campaign began against Qasim's supporters. Saddam then returned to Iraq, gaining employment as an interrogator and basically a thug. Insert Stalin reference here. 
they look the same. They had the same kind of start they really, in they life. They really did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Saddam is Iraq's Stalin, in a sense. Yeah. The first years of Ba'athist rule were brutal and violent. Uh, the, unfortunately for them, the first Ba'athist government didn't last long. And in, night, in November 1963, another coup of Nas- from Nasserite supporters overthrew the government, and Abdul Salim Alif took power. Saddam became involved in a plot to assassinate Arif, but he was caught. He was imprisoned for two years before Ba'athists helped him escape in 1966. On July 17, 1968, Saddam participated in yet another coup, which this time ousted Abdul Rahim Arif, who was Salim Arif's brother, and his Arab Socialist Union government. Ahmed Hassan al-Bakar replaced Arif and Saddam was named as his deputy. This put them at odds with, of course, the Nasserites, and they became pretty bitter rivals. And this became a point where it's like you either supported the Baathists or you supported the Nasserists. And then at one point it became you either supported <laughs> the Saddam or, or Assad or Nasser. Oh, boy. Yeah. You guys following along yet? <laughs> Saddam personally oversaw the creation of Jaiz Hanin, the party's internal security service. He gained a reputation to be feared, and he was both feared and respected amongst the Baath ranks. This, coupled with the family ties within the party, led to his rapid rise in the ranks of the party and the government of Iraq. Under Saddam's behest, Iraq nationalized the oil industry in 1972, which paid off with the following year's energy crisis skyrocketing oil prices and revenue. These were used to, to provide new social services in the country, the most of any, any other Middle Eastern countries at the time. This included universal education for all students at all levels. Saddam also created the most modernized public health care system in the region, and for that, he was actually presented an award by UNESCO. It's weird how ty- like early tyrants early in their career are given... Human rights. Inter- international, like, sort of, not humanitarian, but, like, kind of that type of award, yeah. Civic yeah. awards, I guess, is the best way to put it. I mean, there's certain people who've been given a peace prize that clearly shouldn't have them. Mm. Many. Eh, not many. There's a few. I'm looking sure. at you, Kessinger. Oh, also, here's looking at you, Barack. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even Barack realizes he didn't, like, knows he didn't. But anyway. He at least admitted that. <laughs> yeah. Oil profits were also used to diversify Iraq's economy by launching a national infrastructure campaign to improve roads, mining, and other industries in Iraq. Now, if we can learn something from Iraq, Alberta, maybe diversifying the economy would be one. Forgive my shady, my shade against the government, but so much UCP shade. Yeah. Furthermore, this helped to provide electricity to most of Iraq. Saddam was also involved in Iraq's foreign policy, with him signing a friendship and cooperation treaty with the Soviets in 1972. They may not have liked the Soviets, but they knew they would be good allies to have down the road. Yeah. And they hated the, the Americans, so. This in turn... That seems to basically be like where countries, like how countries decided where they landed on the, in the Cold War is like, well, which one do we hate worse? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, hate the Americans yeah. more. Hey... Hey, USSR. Or it's like, oh, really fucking hate the Russians. Hey, America. Yeah. (laughs) What up? 
This in turn angered the Americans, and they began to secretly fund Iraqi dissidents, namely the Kurds in the north. And this is a strange friendship that will continue even today. Yeah. And I say strange friendship because it, it is... It doesn't actually make sense, but it works. <laughs> uh, it of. doesn't... Well, it makes sense, but it doesn't work, is what I would say. True, I guess. <laughs> it's very one-sided, they're, unfortunately. They're, and I think not. at this point, the Kurds are not really fans of the americans but yeah yeah it's a bit of an abusive relationship yeah then. as cgp gray would say it's a story for another time <laughs> in april 1974 the kurdish people in northern iraq with support from iran israel and the united states launched a rebellion started the starting the second iraqi kurdish war after a year of fighting iran and iraq came to an agreement and iran ended its support of the iraqi kurds this led to Kurdish forces being put down and Iraq regained control of the region. Over 600,000 people were displaced in its aftermath. Saddam became alarmed when El Bakr began negotiating with Syria to merge the two countries, which... Nope, that was not going to go well with Saddam's ambitions. So as, as President al-Assad was to assume the position of deputy, which is what Saddam's position was. Not wanting to lose his power, nor willing to work with the Syrian Baathists, Saddam pressured the aging al-Bakr to resign on July 16, 1979. Saddam was officially named President of Iraq. And thus the regime begins. Saddam quickly worked to purge the Baathist party of any opposition. On July 22nd, in a speech to the Baathist Assembly, he claimed a fifth column was working within the party itself to undermine the movement. He then forced Ma'i Abdel Hussein to read his quote-unquote confession, to, as well as name 68 other alleged conspirators that they were working against the party to cause rift within the country and I the honestly, party. like, it's funny, like, whenever this happens, because it always happens in every situation like this, I mean, Stalin's purges, blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, uh-huh. anytime there's a takeover. And, like, I just can't wrap my head around being that paranoid. Like, can you actually... I, I just can't actually, like, imagine being that paranoid. Yeah. You know? No, I know what you mean. Like, it's well, actually just kind of hard to wrap my head around sometimes. Like, it's also, like, you read it... We read it... We, we learn about all these dictators and whatnot. We're just, like, they have so many similarities. Oh, yeah. It's insane. I like, mean, there's been lots of research, I imagine. I haven't looked that hard into it. But I think there's been lots of research done, especially since there's so much, like done on like criminal profiling that like there's been a lot done on like the psychology of dictators and like the simple like their childhoods and the things that go into making one because mm-hmm. there's definitely a playbook oh yeah like, <laughs> well i mean they the, the only reason why the, the bolsheviks tolerated stalin was because he was good at being a brute they yeah. needed a brute yeah you need was, you need an enforcer if yeah. you're gonna get anywhere i mean S- saddam didn't wasn't the definitely wasn't the brightest individual but what he was good at he was good at and he was actually bright in certain i think you could probably argue that actually of every dictator they weren't their flaws were definitely there but with the, with the things they were good at they were really good at yeah the I only mean, the only one i can think of at the top of my head who i know was actually really educated and like intelligent is tito yeah i mean they all received not all of them but many received good educations whether or not they ever learn anything yeah whereas saddam really actually didn't no i mean like 
some of them in terms of, I mean, like, I'm thinking of the dictators who take over for their fathers, like a Bash- yeah. like Bashar. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. those ones. Those ones have, like, you know, top-notch educations, whether or not they learn anything. Yeah. And who know. knows? They might have just been, like, their, their fathers might have just been greased some palms and... You have a degree from Yale now. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Saddam didn't have a huge education, no. but... Credit where credit's due, but like him nationalizing the oil industry and actually using it to, you know, improve infrastructure and whatnot was a smart move because that made him extremely popular. As it does. And uh, it actually did improve the welfare of Iraqi citizens, but, you know. Didn't last long. Probably didn't do extend it to the Kurds or the Assyrians or no, 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 the, no. the Iraqi Jews. It was certainly so. limited. Oh, yeah. yeah. As to who benefited. <laughs> much, much like under Hitler. <laughs> Reminder, Saddam's not a good guy. No, no, no. <laughs> when we say we give them credit, when we give dictators credit, it's like, well, you did one singular thing good. Yeah. And it wasn't even wholly good because it didn't include everybody probably, but like something yeah, it's like okay you it's did like a shred of not horrible you actually did some decent things but if it's like a pie chart of like horrible and not horrible the not horrible sliver is like it's there it's small yeah i mean there are <laughs> member, there are people on the fuck face list that we, we're like eh, credit work because i mean do. you could definitely you can like we talked about with stalin is like you can very much argue that like a lot of the projects he did were like very good for the people like the moscow metro is truly incredible yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah, same with Saddam. Like, he improved infrastructure and whatnot. And, yeah. He had these six, 68, quote-unquote, conspirators escorted one by one from the room. They were then tried and found guilty of treason, with 22 being executed. A further 100 high-ranking officials were executed on August 1st. So that's usually how you start your dictatorial regime. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in the, it's in the handbook. Yeah. Purge. 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 It just depends on how you do it. Show trials, purges. Yeah. They're all there. And like a lot of other purges that other dictators do, this definitely comes back to bite him right in the ass. (laughs) Yep. As it usually does. There's definitely like an appendix in the handbook where it says, this will bite you in the ass later, but it's a must. Is it really a must? Rite of passage. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I think like... Paranoia is literally in the dictator starter pack. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> extreme paranoia is just part of that. So, <laughs> add a little, add a dash of cruelty and a big pinch of paranoia. Yeah, and a huge dash of narcissism. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> but it really quickly came to bite him in the ass. This leads us to something probably one of the most dense topics i've actually really read through because i didn't and without realizing just how dense it was until i started and then i was like oh i'm never getting out of this okay <laughs> um so like I, like we said at the top of this episode uh terminology is important so i'm about to talk about the iran iraq war and like i said so terminology the iran iraq war was originally referred to as the persian gulf war until the persian gulf war in 1990 1991 that we're talking about right now uh, because that involved the United States, and the movie Jarhead is based on that. After that, that was known as the per- first Persian Gulf War. But technically, the Iran-Iraq War, which I'm about to talk, to talk about, is the Persian Gulf War. So, yeah. You following us yet? Uh-huh. So, the Iraq-Kuwait conflict, which is known as the second Persian Gulf War, eventually became known simply as the Persian Gulf War. 
To be clear, I'm going to just refer to it as the Iran-Iraq War. <laughs> so, <laughs> in Iran, the war is known as the Imposed War and the Holy Defense. State media in Iraq dubbed the war Saddam's Qadassiyah in reference to the 7th century Battle of Al-Qadassiyah, in which, I think I said that right, I probably didn't, I'm sorry, in which Arab warriors overcame the Sasanian Empire during the Muslim conquest of Iran. In April 1969, Iran broke off the 1937 Treaty of over the Shat al-Arab, an important channel for both Iran and Iraq's oil exporting purposes, and Iranian ships stopped paying tolls to Iraq when they used the Shat al-Arab. The Shah of Iran argued that the treaty was unfair to Iran because almost all river borders around the world ran along the Talweg, which is, I had to do research on, I don't know what the hell a Talweg is. So. That is um, the line of lowest elevation within a valley or watercourse. And the importance of this in international law is that the Talweg is the middle of a primary navigable channel of a waterway, and that defines the boundary line between states. And so the Talweg principle is the legal principle that if the boundary between states between two political entities is stated to be a waterway without further description, like a low tide, the boundary follows the Talweg of that watercourse, in particular, the center of the principal navigable water channel, presumably the deepest part. The Shah also argued that it was unfair because most of the ships that used the Shah el-Arab were Iranian anyway, so why the hell are we paying you tolls? <laughs> like, this is dumb. Anyway, Iraq threatened war over the move, because that's what Iraq does, uh, <laughs> when on April 24th, 1969, an Iranian tanker escorted by Iranian warships sailed down the Shah el-Arab, and Iraq, being militarily weaker, did nothing. So, the Iranian blowing off of the treaty marked the beginning of acute tension between the two countries that would last until the Algiers Accords of 1975. Their relationship briefly improved in 1978 when, Ira when Iranian agents in Iraq discovered plans for a pro-Soviet coup d'etat against Iraq's government. When Saddam was informed of this plot, he ordered the execution of dozens of his army's officers and in a sign of reconciliation expelled Rulawa Khomeini, an exiled leader of clerical opposition to the Shah, from Iraq. Nevertheless, Saddam being the warlord he is, only ever saw the 1975 Algiers Agreement as a truce, rather than a def definite settlement, and waited in the weeds for an opportunity to contest it. So tensions between the two flared up again when Iran's Islamic Revolution and its appearance of being a pan-Islamic force, in contrast to Iraq's Arab nationalism. Despite Iraq's goal of regaining the Shat al-Arab, the... I am probably really saying that wrong, but I'm just going to lean into it at this point. The Iraqi government initially seemed to welcome the Iranian revolution, which overthrew Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who was seen as a common enemy. There continued to be frequent border clashes along the Iran-Iraq line throughout 1980, with Iraq publicly complaining of at least 544 incidents, and Iran citing at least 797 violations of its border and airspace. <laughs> they just <laughs> fucked with each other a lot. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ayatollah Rulawa Khomeini or called on Iraqis to overthrow the Ba'ath government, which was received with considerable and understandable anger in Baghdad. On July 17, 1979, despite Khomeini's call, Saddam gave a speech praising the Iranian revolution and called for an Iraqi-Iranian friendship based on non-interference in each other's internal affairs. Khomeini rejected Saddam's overture by calling for Islamic revolution, causing some definite alarm for Saddam. Um, Iran's new Islam... What the fuck, man? Right, basically, like, <laughs> come on, dude. We're both dictators. Let's help each other out. We're both like, horrible people. Fuck. Come on. Right? Help a brother out. <laughs> Iran's new Islamic administration was regarded in Baghdad as an irrational existential threat to the Ba'ath government, especially because the Ba'ath party, being secular in nature, discriminated against and posed a threat to the fundamentalist Shia movement in Iraq, whose clerics were Iran's allies within, within Iraq and whom Khomeini saw as oppressed. And who made up a majority of Iraq's population. Yeah. Which is always awkward. Yeah. 
Saddam's primary interest in war with Iran most likely stemmed from his desire to right the opposed quote-unquote wrongs of the Algiers Agreement, in addition to finally achieving his desire of annexing Khuzestan and becoming a regional superpower. Uh, Khuzestan is a region in the, along the border. His goal was to replace Egypt as the, leader of the, as the quote, leader of the Arab world and to achieve hegemony over the Persian Gulf. He saw Iran's increased weakness due to revolution, sanctions, and international isolation, and had invested heavily in Iraq's military since his defeat against Iran in 1975. He bought large amounts of weaponry from the Soviet Union and France, purchasing an estimated 1,600 tanks and APCs, and over 200 Soviet-made aircraft between the years of 1973 and 1980 alone. By 1980, Iraq had 242,000 soldiers, second only to Egypt in the world, 2,350 tanks, and 340 combat aircraft. As he watched the disintegration of the Iranian army that had frustrated him in 74 and 75, he saw an opportunity to attack using the threat of Islamic revolution as a pretext. Iraqi intelligence reported in July 1980 that despite Iran's aggressive rhetoric, quote, it is clear that, at present, Iran has no power to launch wide offensive operations against Iraq or to defend on a large scale. Days before the Iraq invasion, their intelligence reiterated once again that, quote, the enemy deployment organization does not indicate hostile intentions and appears to be taking on a more defensive mode. On March 8, 1980, Iran announced it was withdrawing its ambassador from Iraq, downgrading its diplomatic ties to the charged affairs level, and demanded that Iraq do the same. The following day, Iraq declared Iran's ambassador persona non grata and demanded its withdrawal from Iraq by March 15th. Things escalated quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Iran launched a full-scale invasion of Iran on September 22nd, 1980. Uh, the Iraqi Air Force launched surprise air attacks on 10 Iranian airfields with the objective of destroying the Iranian Air Force. The attack, however, more or less failed to damage the Iranian Air Force significantly. It did damage some of Iran's airbase infrastructure, but it failed to destroy any significant numbers of aircraft, which is really the more important part. The next day, Iraq launched a ground invasion along a front measuring 644 kilometers in three simultaneous attacks. The purpose of the invasion, according to him, was to blunt the edge of Khomeini's movement and to thwart his attempts to ex- export Islamic revolution to Iraq and the Persian Gulf states. They, they literally just like basically lined up all of their troops on the border and told them to move. <laughs> well, let's go. He hoped that by annexing Khuzestan, he would cause such a blow to Iran's prestige that it would lead to the new government's downfall, or at least end Iran's calls for his overthrow. (laughs) Which he was definitely salty about, and I don't really blame him. (laughs) It's a little bit like Tito and Stalin. Like, seriously, dude, stop trying to assassinate me. (laughs) Fuck. Of the six large divisions Iraq sent, four were sent to Khuzestan, which was located near the border south end to cut off the Shat al-Arab from the rest of Iran and to establish a territorial security zone. The other two divisions invaded across the northern and central part of the border to in- prevent an Iranian counterattack. Two of the four Iraqi divisions, one mechanized and one armored, operated near the southern end and began a siege of the strategically important cities of Abadan and Khorram Shahar. On the central front, the Iraqis occupied Mehran, advanced towards the foothills of the Zagros Mountains, and were able to block the traditional Tehran-Baghdad invasion route by securing territory forward of Qasr-e-Shirin in Iran. In the north, the Iraqis attempted to establish a strong defensive position opposite Suleimania to protect the Iraqi Kirkuk oil complex. Unfortunately for the Iraqis, their hopes of an uprising by the ethnic Arabs of Khuzestan failed to materialize, as most, most ethnic Arabs remained loyal to Iran. The Iraqi troops advancing to Iran in 1980 were described by the author Patrick Brogan as, quote, badly led and lacking in offensive spirit. 
The first known chemical attack on Iran by Iraq was probably during this fighting and took place around the city of Susengard. Despite surprising them, the Iranian Air Force retaliated against Iraqi air attacks with a large-scale attack of their own on Iraqi air bases and infrastructure in Operation Kama 99. Groups of F-4 Phantom and F-5 Tiger fighter jets attacked targets throughout Iraq, such as oil facilities, dams, petrochemical plants, and oil refineries. Their targets included Mosul Air Base, Baghdad, and the Kukuk oil refinery. Iraq was caught off guard by the strength of the retaliation. Their intelligence might have been a little bit wrong. Um, <laughs> or they just sucked worse than they thought. I don't know. Like, I think, well, it's probably a combination of both. But I think Iraq, or like Saddam, I think, kind of got, you know, blinded by the numbers. You know, he, he looked too much at his sheer numbers, his size, and was like, look, I have this. My army is physically larger than his, than theirs, and like, we're stronger. But didn't necessarily account for leadership or motivation or things like that the intangibles yeah as they're called in sports <laughs> um so i think it's like a combination of that and also probably intelligence being a little bit arrogant yeah so the strength of the retaliation definitely caught iraq off guard and it caused the iraqis heavy losses and economic disruption but the iranians also took heavy losses and lost a lot of crew so it wasn't good for them any any success iran really made Actually, honestly, any success either side made came at a cost in this war. Iranian Army Aviation's AH-1 Cobra helicopter gunships began attacking the advancing Iraqi divisions along with F-4 Phantoms armed with Maverick missiles. They destroyed numerous armored vehicles and impeded the Iraqi advance, though they didn't exactly stop it. Uh, meanwhile, the Iraqi Air Force was being repelled by Iran's F-14 Tomcat interceptor fighter jets using Phoenix missiles, which downed dozens of Iraqi Soviet-built MiGs in the first couple days. It's really interesting to see the difference between like who they bought their equipment from. Yeah, I mean the. the so definitely like a proxy war in some ways. I mean, as much as Iran hated the Americans, in a way, rightfully so. They're like, "We'll buy your shit." No, no, no. It's not that they bought them. It's not that they're like, "Oh, who left all this great equipment lying around?" Oh well. Guess we'll just use it. <laughs> um. Anyway, the Iranian regular military police forces. Volunteer Bazji and Revolutionary Guards all went about their business separately, which meant that Iraq didn't face what you would call a coordinated resistance. <laughs> However, the Iranian Navy attacked Basra, Iraq, destroying two oil terminals near the Iraqi port Fa, which diminished Iraq's ability to export oil and therefore pay for the war, um, <laughs> and also fuel it. Um, Iranian ground forces, primarily consisting of the Revolutionary Guard, retreated, retreated to the cities where they set up defenses against the invaders. On September 30th, Iran's Air Force launched Operation Scorch Sword, interesting name, striking and badly damaging the near-complete Osirak nuclear reactor near Baghdad. Good thing it wasn't operational yet. <laughs> By October 1st, Baghdad had been subjected to eight airstrikes, and to respond, the Iraqis launched their own airstrikes against Iranian targets. That's a lot of airstrikes against one city. Yeah, I think Tehran <laughs> Also got the, it good. Well, yeah, Tehran definitely got the bulk of... Because I guess... I get, um, well, you might explain this later, but basically it came to a point where the Iraq just wanted to d diminish yeah, the morale. Okay, sorry. Much, yeah. No, you're good. The, this war was basically, it just became about that period. Yeah. Who can be demoralized first? Pretty much. Because that was really their <laughs> only hope of maybe winning. <laughs> yeah. Like, honestly. Well, you got, you got one side that had a shit ton of people who had no tactics. Mm -hmm. And then you had a, another side who had a shit ton of good equipment with, no, no tactics. tactics. 
It's not really the best example of military leadership. No. Sun Tzu rolled over in his grave numerous times, I imagine. <laughs> Let's just say neither of them read The Art of War. <laughs> um, anywho, there's also reasons why it also sucked. This war was also difficult, and the big one of the bigger ones was that the mountainous border between the two countries made a deep ground invasion almost impossible, which really heightened the importance of airstrikes. This region is extremely like difficult terrain, so you're not yeah. really going to get far on foot. Um, the invasion's first waves were a series of airstrikes targeted at Iranian airfields, and Iraq also attempted to bomb Tehran, the capital of, of Iran, into submission, basically. <laughs> they just firebombed it over and over and over again. It didn't work. No, but that's, that's really the power of ideology. And also, I feel like at some point, when you're just getting shit on that much, people are like, oh, fuck off. Like... You're not going to kill me now. Like, yeah, if anything, it definitely united. It just strengthens resolve. I mean, that happened during the siege of St. Petersburg. It's just, it's, it's, it's common. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to say it's all ideological, but there's just a certain like level of when you're backed in the corner, it's like fight or flight. Yeah. Um, but one of the most vicious battles of this war took place at the aforementioned city of Khoram Shahar. Yeah. After that battle, several thousand were dead on each side, and Iranians came to call this place the city of blood. The battle began with Iraqi air raids against key points and mechanized divisions advancing on the city in a crescent-like formation. They were slowed by Iranian air attacks and Revolutionary Guard troops with recoilless rifles, rocket-propelled grenades, and good old Molotov cocktails. The Iranians flooded the marsh areas around the city, forcing the Iraqis to traverse through narrow strips of land. Iraqi tanks launched attacks with no infantry support, and many tanks were lost to Iranian anti-tank teams. And that's just... I know, an example of equipment and no tactics. Like, you need some infantry, you idiots. <laughs> but otherwise, you're just sitting ducks. By September 30th, though, the Iraqis had managed to clear the Iranians from the outskirts of the city. The next day, the Iraqis launched infantry and armored attacks into the city. And after heavy house-to-house fighting, the Iraqis were repelled. On October 14th, the Iraqis launched a second offensive. And the Iranians launched a controlled withdrawal from the city, street by street. By October 24th, most of the city was captured, and the Iranians evacuated across the Karan River. But some partisan resistance fighters remained, and fighting continued into November. But instead of rebelling like Saddam had hoped, and I think kind of relied on, actually, <laughs> uh, the Iranian people instead rallied around their country. An estimated 200,000 fresh troops arrived at the front by November, many of whom were ideologically committed volunteers, and not very well trained or equipped. The Iraqis had finally captured Karamshar, but the battle had delayed Iraqis enough to allow the large-scale deployment of the Iranian military. Saddam ordered his forces to advance towards Dezfil and Avaz and lay sieges to both cities, but the offensive was badly damaged by Iranian militias and air power. Iran's air force destroyed Iraq's army supply depots and fuel supplies and was strangling the country through an aerial siege. Despite sanctions against it, Iran's supplies had not been exhausted, and the military often cannibalized spare parts from other equipment and began searching for parts on the black market. They were creative. (laughs) Uh, The the other thing is Iran made a lot of enemies when the Islamic revolution, a lot, like it was their own, it was the the Ayatollah's fault because he was one of the few people to piss off both the Americans and the Soviets. Soviets. (laughs) It's pretty hard to do that actually. In fact, when I was like looking into it, because usually when you piss off one, the other likes you more. Yeah, but <laughs> it's hard to no, do you, piss, you you insulted them both yeah. big time. In fact, I was reading somewhere. I don't know if this how true this is, but apparently one of the only countries that was willing to support Iran was North Korea. <laughs> it's not really a helpful ally. No. <laughs> um, 
On November 28th, Iran launched Operation Morvarid, or it translates to Pearl, a combined air and sea attack which destroyed 80% of Iraq's navy and all of its radar sites in the northern portion of the country. When Iraq laid siege to Abadan and dug its troops in in around the city, it was unable to blockade the port, which allowed Iran to resupply Abadan by sea. That's kind of like the first rule of blockading a city is like (laughs) surround the fucking city. (laughs) Iran's strategic reserves had been depleted and by now it lacked the power to go on any major offensives until nearly the end of the war. By December 7th, Hussein announced that Iraq was going on the Saddam Hussein announced that Iraq was going to go on the offense or on the defensive. By the end of 1980, Iraq had destroyed about 500 Western-built Iranian tanks and captured 100 others. For the next eight months, both sides were on defensive footing as the Iranians needed more time to reorganize their forces after the damage inflicted by the purge of 1979 and 1980. Again, good old purges coming back to bite you square in the ass. (laughs) During this period, fighting consisted mainly of artillery duels and raids. Iraq had mobilized 21 divisions for the invasion, while Iran countered with only 13 regular army divisions and one brigade, and I'm pretty sure that's honestly all they had. Of the regular divisions, only seven were deployed to the border. The war bogged down into a World War I-style trench warfare dogfight with tanks and modern late 20th century weapons. Due to the power of anti-tank weapons, such as the RPG-7, armored maneuvers by the Iraqis were very costly, and they consistently entrenched their tanks into static positions. It's also one of the it's one of the first times that chemical warfare was used. Yeah. Well, not probably not since the First World War. But as often. Yeah. Like... And it for, was a major. It was a major feature for the first time, probably since. Yeah, and like for the in the same manner. In the same manner that the First World War was used. Yeah. Like chemicals were used in Vietnam. I mm-hmm. mean, offici- Well, yeah. I mean, officially to you know clear forests, but mm-hmm. you know unofficially to yeah. kill. Whereas in this case, it was a hundred percent used to kill Iranians. So Iraq also began firing Scud missiles into Desfol and Avaz and used terror bombing to bring the war to the Iranian civilian population. Iran would then launch dozens of what were called human wave assaults. So Iranians suffered from a shortage of heavy weapons, but they had a large number of devoted volunteer troops, like Jonah mentioned, no equipment, but lots of people. So they began using, and no tactics, um, so they began using human wave attacks against the Iraqis. Typically, an Iranian assault would commence with the poorly trained Bazi, who would launch the primary human wave assault to swamp the weakest portions of the Iranian, sorry, of the Iraqi lines on mass, even bodily clearing minefields. This would be followed up by the more experienced Revolutionary Guard infantry, who would breach the weakened Iraqi lines, followed up by regular army using mechanized forces, who would maneuver through the breach and attempt to encircle the defeated army. According to former Iraqi General Rad al-Hamdani, the Iranian wave charges consisted of armed quote-unquote civilians who carried most of their necessary equipment themselves into battle and often lacked command, control, and logistics. They're basically just like, it was like opening a gate and being like, have at it. Give her, boys. And they were, they did. They did it. <laughs> operations are often carried out during the night and deception operations, infiltrations, and maneuvers became more common. The Iranians would also reinforce the infiltrating forces with new units to keep up their momentum. Once a weak point was found, the Iranians would concentrate all of their forces into that area in an attempt to break through with human wave attacks. I guess we should explain something really quick about the... Do you talk about how they use the chemical weapons exactly? I, a little bit, I think so. Okay. But go ahead. They, like, it wasn't like they were dropping them, like shooting them off from artillery or dropping them from an airplane. They were, 
pretty much it was exactly the way that they'd be doing in the in the first world war it's like mm-hmm. open the gas they would basically they would wait until the wind was in the right direction open these gas tanks and just let the chemicals blow slowly over yeah and of course they were used heavily during these mm-hmm. these mass wave attacks which i don't think i need to tell you were devastating towards the iranians yeah but they also worked in terms of getting through to the iraqi through the Iraqi lines, but yeah, they were devastating for sure. So there's this was a period really of stalemate. Like there was a lot of stalemates in this war. Um, <laughs> it's a long fucking war too. But yeah, it's basically a war of an eight year stalemate. It's basically a, it's essentially a war of attrition. Yeah, it's actually a lot like World War One in lots of ways. Yeah, because there really is no clear well, there's no clear winner. There's technically a clear winner in World War One, but like not really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If you think the treaty says there's a clear winner, but nobody won. Um. <laughs> it was just a, it was a, it was basically the reason why it went on so long is because both sides refused to stop, to stop and admit defeat. Exactly. So yeah, well, these attacks, while they were extremely bloody and costly, uh, when they were used in combination with infiltration and surprise, they were quite successful and caused a lot of Iraqi defeat. Um, but eventually the stalemate broke and fighting continued through 1982. Uh, the Iraqi forces had been battered by the fighting to this point. Their manpower fell from 210,000 to 150,000. Uh, 20,000 soldiers were killed and over 30,000 were captured. Two of their four active armored divisions and at least three mechanized divisions fell to less than a brigade strength. Uh, it also didn't help that the Iranians captured 450 tanks and APCs. Which is, I think, most of them. <laughs> or like a lot of them. Yeah. The Air Force was in no better shape after losing 55 aircraft since early December 1981. That left them with only 100 intact fighter bombers and interceptors. A defector who flew his Iraqi MiG-21 to Syria in June of 1982 revealed that the Iraqi Air Force had only three squadrons of fighter bombers capable of mounting operations into Iran, which is not that much. But despite all of this, the Iraqis still had 3,000 tanks to Iran's (laughs) 1,000. So their sheer numbers did actually benefit Saddam. It's just that Saddam's army was like basically heavily armed but extremely inefficient and if they had had any kind of training would have been like a world destroyer you know yeah and in a way it's almost good for the world that they were so useless because they had so much power yeah they had one of the largest armies at this time second largest in the world after egypt in terms of like troop strength yeah and if they had any kind of and it's just like they lost all that equipment and they still had three times the amount of their enemy like it's just clearly like extremely inefficient they should have crushed iran like should have crushed them yeah absolutely but, but anyway. again, Saddam's mm. incompetence kind of had a lot and to do with that. Purges, as well. they'll do that. Yep. And you kill all your experienced people. Um, purges counts as incompetence. <laughs> yeah. Paranoia and incompetence. Yeah. They, they go together. Saddam believed at this point that his army was too demoralized and battered to hold on to Khuzestan and major, major swaths of Iranian territory. So he withdrew and redeployed them in defense along the border, which was actually probably a smart move. His troops remained in occupation of some key Iranian border areas including the disputed territory that prompted the invasion in the first place, which is around the Shat al-Arab. After the failure of the 1982 summer offensives, Iran believed that a major effort along the entire breadth of the front would yield victory. They were really just talking themselves into this one. (laughs) Uh, During the course of 1983, Iran launched five major assaults along the front, though none achieved substantial success as the Iranians staged more massive human wave attacks. It was estimated that by this time there were no more than 70 operational Iranian fighter aircraft at any given time. Iran had its own helicopter repair facilities, though, and that, as a result, led to them using her- helicopters for close air support, which works, but... Mm. However, Iranian... This is, like... This is the funny part, actually, of all of this in some ways. 
uh, Iranian fighter pilots were actually like extremely talented and way better trained than their Iraqi counterparts because almost all of them received training from American officers before the 1979 revolution. So Iran actually had like an extremely talented air force. They were just poorly equipped. Yeah. The air force in Iran was actually the like exception to this war where they finally had like well-trained people. They just needed some equipment. So despite their superior pilots, the aircraft shortages, the size of the defended space, and also America feeding intelligence to Iraq made it difficult on Iran to, you know, defend their airspace. And Iraq was able to exploit gaps. And this meant that Iraqi air campaigns met very little resistance and they struck over half of Iran. And Iraq gained air superiority towards the end of the war pretty easily. Uh, Iran's a massive country, too. It's huge, yeah. And so, I mean, as t- you can be as talented as you want, but you can't cover the whole country if you only have you know, a handful of planes. So uh, the war would continue to rage on through the 1980s, finally coming to a head in 1988. Uh, Saddam sent a message to Khomeini in mid-1988, threatening to launch new and powerful full-scale invasion and attack Iranian cities with weapons of mass destruction. Shortly afterwards, Iraqi aircraft bombed the Iranian town of Ashnavieh with poison gas, immediately killing and wounding over 2,000 civilians. The fear of an all-out chemical attack against Iran's largely unprotected civilian population weighed heavily on the Iranian leadership and realized the international community had zero intention of restraining Iraq. If anything, they wanted Iraq to... Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They would never admit that, but yeah. Iraqi bombing campaigns continued, and by July 1988, elements of Iranian leadership persuaded Khomeini to accept a ceasefire. On July 20th, 1988, Iran accepted Resolution 598, showing its willingness to accept a ceasefire. A state from Khomeini was read out on a radio address, and he expressed deep displeasure and reluctance about accepting the ceasefire, saying, quote, Happy are those who have departed through martyrdom. Happy are those who have lost their lives in this convoy of light. Unhappy am I that I still survive and have drunk the poison chalice. It's very dramatic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The news news was received, I guess. It's very Shakespearean, isn't it? Yeah, it's very dramatic. Especially drunk the poison Poison chalice. chalice. Like, who are you, Socrates? Don't think so. I don't know if that's just because Shakespeare uses poison a lot, but you know. It's the chalice thing for me. Yeah, like, chalice and poison. And I realize that's probably a transla- like the translation, but also just like, it's dramatic. <laughs> Drama. Anyway. The news was received with celebration in Baghdad, but in Tehran, the end of the war was met with a very somber mood. Despite both Iran and Iraq accepting the ceasefire agreement, Mujahideen Akelk, or MEK, decided to launch attacks of their own, and wished to advance all the way to Tehran. They at times were supported by the Iraqi army in some instances, but they were ultimately defeated by Iranian counterattacks. And this went on for like a year, kind of, a few months anyways. But the last notable combat actions of the war took place in August 1988, when the Iranian Navy fired on a freighter and Iraq launched chemical attacks on Iranian civilians, killing an unknown number of them and wounding around 2,300. Uh, Iraq came under international pressure finally to curtail their offensives as they had you know, agreed to a ceasefire. It's like, dude, can't have it both ways. (laughs) Pick a lane. Resolution 598 became effective on August 8th, 1988, ending all combat operations between the two countries. And by August 20th, peace with Iran was restored. Uh, UN peacekeepers belonging to the UNIMOG mission (laughs) took the field. I just like saying them. It's fun. (laughs) UNIMOG, which is the United Nations Iran-Iraq Military Observer Group. It's the official name. Just like calling it Unimog. <laughs> <laughs> they took the field and they remained on the Iran-Iraq border until 1991. The war ended up being one of attrition for the most part. Neither side actually really won. 
Both sides say they won. But they probably both lost. They definitely both lost. In reality. But some Western observers did actually argue that Iraq really won, in large because of their overwhelming successes between April and July of 1988. But, I mean, that's just recency bias, I guess. Yeah. It's a long war. In the end, the Iran... Iran, I think the longer the war, the least the less clear it becomes who wins and who loses, especially when, when it ends, because the longer the war, the more likely it's going to end in some kind of stalemate. Yeah, I guess if you had to argue, I guess you can say Iran technically won because they're still there. St- relatively stable. Yeah, I mean... But at the same time... I guess I, it just depends how you want to count victory. Like, what you qualify as victory. Yeah. That, I mean, for me, neither side... I think they both lost. Yeah, neither <laughs> side won. They, they both absolutely lost yeah. because... In the end, the Iran-Iraq war turned out to be the deadliest conventional war ever fought between regular armies of developing countries, for whatever that stat's worth. Iraqi casualties are estimated from 105 to 200,000, with another 400,000 wounded or and 70,000 captured. So thousands of civilians died on both sides in air raids and ballistic missile attacks and chemical attacks. And prisoners were taken by both countries, and they began to be released in 1990, but some were not released for more than a decade after the war. And yeah, like we said, I mean, like I just picked this as an arbitrary endpoint, but like it does keep going. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it was kind of one of those situations where it's like, oh, we're never getting out of this. That's cool. Well, the funny thing is now that Saddam is not in power anymore iraq and iran have generally gotten a lot along yeah yeah they have but uh so that that war definitely i guess well it's important since it was the the first persian gulf war Mm -hmm. but also it's uh it kind of sets up everything that's one of those things that sets the stage to this yeah to what the actual conflict we're talking about i'm gonna kind of flip over to uh iraq and the united states since um our American friends jump into this now. So following the Ba'athist coup in Iraq, the U.S. and Iraq did not have the greatest diplomatic relations. A major part of Ba'athist ideology relies on anti-Western sentiment, so obviously America wasn't pretty stoked about that. And I think Americans probably see Ba'athism as kind of close to communism in some ways, or at least like... Oh, absolutely. You know, like they don't... I mean, frankly, I can't say that I understand it much better than them, but assuming... (laughs) But given that they think anything vaguely so... Anything vaguely like not ruthlessly capitalist as communism, um, I think <laughs> then they definitely would associate pathism with communism. So Well, it's definitely one of the, it's definitely like okay, so they hate us and they are friendly with the Soviet yeah. Union? Fuck this. Must like, be communist. That's, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't really friends, but well, I mean they were they had relations, but they weren't really that great. And then in the late 60s, there was even more tension in the region, like Jonah mentioned, with the creation of Israel uh, and then the resulting Arab-Israeli war. 130,000 Jewish Iraqis emigrated to Israel to avoid the growing persecution in Iraq. Following the Six-Day War, Israel successfully fought off its Arab neighbors, including Iraq, and took the West Bank, Gaza, Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights. All still disputed. Following the Ba'athist coup, the new government found itself in a weak position and was constantly paranoid about another coup. And, uh, you know, that's what happens after you have a coup. I mean, when they first came in, into power, they were ousted by a coup pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, the paranoia was valid. Yeah. Like, um, Baghdad bombarded com- communities in the Galilee during the Six-Day War, and in retaliation, Israel conducted an air attack into northern Jordan on December 4th, 1968, targeting Iraqi positions. Angered by the attack, the government announced it would begin a crackdown on alleged joint Israeli-American on, on an alleged joint Israeli-American spy ring. 
All through December, a total of 14 people were arrested under the accusation that they were part of this pirate ring. Of these 14, 12 were Jewish men from Baghdad and Basra. All were charged and convicted of espionage. On January 27, 1969, Baghdad Radio invited people to gather in Liberation Square to enjoy the feast. An estimated 500,000 people showed up. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Nine of the men were publicly hanged, with many in attendance celebrating. The three remaining captives were later executed on August 26th. International outcry sparked as a result of these hangings, but the Ba'athists continued their persecution. Hundreds were arrested, tortured, given show trials with sham convictions, and a total of 51 were killed by the end of the year, while over 100 were wrongfully imprisoned, many of whom were never heard from again. In the early 1970s, the majority of the Jewish population was now allowed to leave the country. Sadly, those too old to travel were left behind. Yeah. Jewish population in Iraq still is... Neg- like, I, I don't want, I say negligible in the amount and yeah. how tiny it is. I don't mean that they're... They don't exist. It's just that it's tiny. It, it's yeah. super tiny. So out of anger over these executions, Tricky Dickies, it, tricky, tricky Dickies administration and Nixon's administration looked into a possible coup in Iraq, but instead focused on propping up Iran, then run by the Shah. Well, for that, was like, no, oh, we're just going to casually look into a coup. Yeah. As the Americans would. Anyway. The Shah sponsored Kurd separatists by providing weapons and supplies to attack IPC installations in the areas surrounding Kirkuk and Mosul. This cost Iraq millions of dollars in damages, and again, there's an oil refinery in Kirkuk, so... Yeah. (laughs) Al-Bakr, desperately seeking peace, sent Saddam to negotiate with Kurdish leader Mustafa Barzani. When the Shah learned these negotiations were happening, he flew into a rage. The Shah sponsored an anti-Ba'athist coup to take place on the night of January 20th and 21st. And much to the Shah's surprise, Iraq caught wind of the plot, managed to gain recordings of the conspirators, and 33 were executed, and Iran's ambassador was expelled from the country. Did this not. is like the one few, t- the one time that they actually had a real coup. Yeah. An actually real conspiracy against yeah, them. The paranoia but... was actually, like, validated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As part of the negotiations, Iraq agreed to support Kurdish autonomy on January 24th. The CIA alleged to be involved in the coup attempt, and let's be honest, they probably were, because that's how the CIA does. Iraqi Kurdistan was supposed to gain autonomy within four years' time. However, Iraq began a process known as Arabization. The idea was to drive out locals in northern Iraq, so Kurds, Assyrians, Yazidis, etc., and replace them with Iraqi Arab settlers. Focus was particularly concentrated on the Kirkuk and Kanakin regions because they were both rich in oil. Kevin is just angry at this episode. Yeah. The O word. Whew. All his dead ancestors. <laughs> Angered by this violation of the agreement, the Kurdish forces once again began their, cur- began their campaign against the Iraqi government. Jumping to the Kurds' aid was Israel, Iran, and the United States. Iran sent in troops to aid Kurdish forces against the Iraqis, while the U.S. and Israel provided intelligence and equipment. Knowing that they could not take on Iraq at this, oh my god, Iran at this time, sorry, Albuquerque sent word to the Shah that he was willing to offer concessions in exchange for ending their support of the Kurds. Iran agreed, and representatives from both states met in Algiers, Algeria in March 1975. Uh, this is the agreement I mentioned in previous segment about Shat el Arab. And how Saddam only ever really saw this as like a placeholder. (laughs) He saw this as more of a guideline (laughs) or like a suggestion than more of a rule. In the end, Iraq agreed to cede half of the width of the Shah al-Arab River to Iran. Without Iran's involvement, Israel was unable to transfer equipment to Kurdistan. 
The only other possible route was through Turkey, but the Turks were unwilling to allow support for Kurdish separatists through its territory because they also, you know, have a Kurdish population that they didn't really want to give independence. Yeah. So therefore, Israel was shit out of luck. Seeing they were close to collapse, Barzani fled to Iran with most of his supporters while the Kurdish forces surrendered en masse, ending the war. Following the conflict, Arabization increased. 600 local villages were burned and up to 200,000 Kurds were deported to other Kurdish regions. In total, 600,000 people became displaced. That includes the Kurds, Assyrians, Yazidis, yeah. etc. Everybody. Yeah. It sucks. And then, of course, the infamous Iran-Contra affair impacted Iraqi-United States relations. Since we're not really, not, I'm not going to talk about Iran-Contra, and I don't really know if we'll do an episode on it later. A really great podcast called American Scandal did a season on, it's like, I think it's four episodes on Iran-Contra, and I definitely recommend giving it a listen. It's really well done. Done by a man named Lindsey Graham, who was definitely a better person than the other Lindsey Graham who's in Senate. <laughs> Do not get them mixed up. One is much better than the other. Beloved podcaster, not a uh, dick face. <laughs> anyway. So in short, the Iran-Contra affair. The U.S. was openly sending weapons to Iraq against the Iranians during the Iran-Iraq war. However, clandestinely, the U.S. was also selling weapons to Israel, who in turn sold them to Iran to fight Iraq. Uh, the Americans then used the profit to fund right-wing Contras in Central America. Yeah. Really illegal. <laughs> That's pretty much how I'd sum that up. Reagan, Reagan had his sticky fingers and everything. Uh, or his, well, his people had their fingers and everything. However, the United States launched Operation Staunch, an arms embargo against Iran. The idea was to end the shipment of arms supporting Iran in the war, which was rather limited ed- anyways. But however, arms shipments to Iraq were allowed. Overall, the Iran-Iraq war improved Iraqi-American relations to at least a somewhat cordial level. They were the preferred son of a bitch. Yeah. Who do we hate less? Well, I guess it's you. So, yeah. Yeah. This kind of created an era of tension between Iraq and its neighbors. First and foremost, with Israel. Needless to say, relations between Israel and Iraq were very poor. (laughs) In fact, probably non-existent. As mentioned before, Iraqi troops aided Jordan during the Six-Day War when Iraq was under Arif. Iraq sent 30,000 troops and between 200 and 500 tanks to Syria during the Israeli counterattack, which nearly brought the Syrian front to collapse. This helped solve the Israeli advance, but failed to push it back before the ceasefire. Furthermore, Iraq sent troops during the War of Attrition and the Yom Kippur War. So it just seemed no matter how many, how much, how many countries were against them or how many troops were and equipment was put against them, Israel, they just could not defeat Israel. I guess it's like when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> to add to our simplicity, like super simplicity of yeah. our explanations, yeah. Another big place of contention was with Kuwait. Kuwait's and Iraq's relations had been tumultuous. Even today, they remain tumultuous. It extends from a border dispute between the two. Iraq has long claimed Kuwait as part of its territory, as Kuwait was a historical part of the Ottoman province of Basra. Damn Ottomans. Conflict between the two almost sparked in March 1973 when when the Iraqi army began occupation of al-Samita close to the Kuwaiti border. 
However, nothing became of the incident, and it was de-escalated through pressure by the Arab League. Tensions thawed between the two during the Iran-Iraq War because Kuwait actually openly supported the Iraqi government. Kuwait had always felt threatened by Iran and therefore saw Iraq as, I don't know, the perfect blockade. Mm. Iraq and Saudi Arabia also still, in a lot of ways, don't like each other. Iraq's and Saudi Arabia's poor relations stem back to the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which divided up the Middle East. As part of the agreement, the House of Hashim royal family took power in Iraq, Jordan, and the Hejaz. This created a rivalry between the Hashemites in the Hejaz and the Sauds in Najid for dominance in the Arabian Peninsula. Hejaz was later conquered by Najid, and this created the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia we all know today. In fact, the same royal family is still in power. The House of Saud practices the conservative Salifa Islam, which is a branch of Sunni advocating for a return to more traditionalist Islam, while the Hashemites practice Hanafi, which is still conservative, but a lot, but not as traditionalist as Salifa. Relations got worse with the 1958 revolution in Iraq, which replaced it with the pan-Arab secular government. The prospect of secular pan-Arabism on the border with Saudi Arabia terrified the Sauds. The potential of such ideas taking hold in the country was too much, and this drove the Saudis to, to improve relations with Kuwait, Jordan, and Iran, at the time under the Shah, and the United States, which is a relationship that is still blooming today. Iraq and the Saudis worked to improve relations in 1974 to some success. Iraq helped to calm tensions between Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Iran, bring a cordial relationship between the three. By this point, pan-Arabism was in the decline due to both the death of Nasser in 1970 and the rivalry between the Syrian and Iraqi Ba'athist factions. During the Iran-Iraq War, Saudi Arabia publicly declared neutrality during the conflict. However, behind the scenes, they provided Iraq with up to $25 billion in grants and loans at low interest, as well as lease oil fields to Iraq in the neutral zone, and even sent workers to assist in the construction of an oil pipeline across Iraq. While relations had calmed, Iraq's continued claims over Kuwait continued to strain relations between the two. Very briefly, I'm going to mention a, a organization I'm sure everyone's heard of, but is not really sure what it is. This is OPEC, or the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Say that five times fast. Established in Baghdad in September 1969, the five original members were Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. The purpose is to, quote, coordinate and unify the petroleum policies of its member countries and ensure stabilization of the oil markets in order to secure an efficient economic and regular supply of petroleum to consumers, a steady income to producers, and a fair return on capital for those investing in the petroleum industry, end quote. OPEC is very controversial because whatever you hear about oil prices kind of fluctuating, that's kind of OPEC's fault. <laughs> and they caused a lot of problems prior to the, to the conflict. The end of the Iran-Iraq war renewed tensions between Kuwait and Iraq, this time over a vital region along the Iraqi-Kuwaiti border. By 1990, Saddam had, a, had become angered over excess oil extraction by the Middle East countries, particularly Kuwait. The Kuwaiti royal family under Emir Jabir III 
demanded Iraq pay back the debts owed to them following the conflict despite Iraq's need to spend on rebuilding, especially its oil industry. Kuwait also overexceeded its quotas, which in turn dropped oil prices. This caused a drop in prices from $20.50 per barrel at the beginning of 1990 to just $13.60 per barrel by July. This would result in Iraq losing $1 billion worth of revenue per year if things were to have gone on like this. So I think their anger with Kuwait is justified. Yeah. Not the reaction to it, but... Yeah. Um, on July 17th, Saddam publicly accused Kuwait of stealing Iraqi oil by drilling onto, into the Iraqi side of the Rumalia oil fields along the Kuwaiti-Iraqi border. In an emotionally charged speech, he declared, quote, The oil quota violators have stabbed Iraq with a poison dagger. Iraqis will not forget the saying that cutting necks is better than cutting means of living. Oh, God Almighty, be witness that we have warned them. Which, in my opinion, that's a very terrifying speech. <laughs> Saddam ordered troops on the Kuwaiti border with missiles aimed both at Kuwait and Israel. At first, the Americans believed Saddam was bluffing. In fact, the, the U, when U.S. State Department spokesperson Margaret Tewiller was asked about a potential invasion of Kuwait, she responded stating the U.S. and Kuwait had no defense treaties in place, and therefore it was not their duty to act in such an event. Hosni Mubarak of Egypt and King Hussein, no relation, of Jordan, attempted to establish dialogue between Kuwait and Iraq. During these talks, Iraq demanded Kuwait forgive Iraq of its war debts, which was over a billion dollars worth, arguing that it defended the Arab world from Iran. Kuwait limited its future oil production in order to maintain high oil prices on the world market. And finally, Kuwait relinquished its control on Bibian to Iraq, an island located in the Persian Gulf, which would prove a vital strategic port for Iraqi shipments and defense. By this point, President George Bush Sr. had also stepped in to mediate the situation. He determined Kuwait had indeed violated Iraqi sovereignty by drilling into Iraq's side of the Rumalia oil fields and ordered Kuwait should pay $10 billion in reparations for these violations. Kuwait agreed to most of these terms, announcing it would limit its production of oil. OPEC also announced it would increase oil prices of their member countries in order to aid the economic recovery of Iraq. When time came to pay, Kuwait only paid back $9 billion of the $10 billion. This was the straw that broke the camel's back with Saddam. On August 2nd, he announced all negotiations, all negotiations were suspended indefinitely. Same day, Iraqi troops moved into Kuwait. The Persian Gulf War had begun. As uh, one of the YouTube channels, uh, if you guys are interested, go check out Feature History. He's a pretty great historical YouTuber. And he does a really great episode on Saddam's Iraq. And he mentions that it may seem like a bit of a overreaction to being angry of getting only $9 billion of the $10 billion. But he says, you also got to remember, he's being scammed out of a billion dollars. Yeah. So still don't, still doesn't justify what, what he did next. Iraq's invasion force consisted of 100,000 troops, all highly trained and equipped. 
Their orders were given right at 2 a.m. on August 2nd. Kuwait is a tiny country with a small population, especially compared to Iraq. Its military had nowhere near the size to take on its neighbor. Iraq had an army of over 1 million, well-equipped and trained. Kuwait, on the other hand, had less than 20,000 in active service. So right away, there was a problem (laughs) for Kuwait. As soon as he was informed Iraqi forces were pushing towards the capital, Javier III fled by boat to Saudi Arabia with his heir, Prince Saad, and the remaining royal family. The next morning, on national Saudi television, Saeed declared Kuwait had been invaded and the Kuwaiti people would resist the occupation. Back in the country, residents of Kuwait City were in a state of panic to the sound of gunfire, explosions, and aircraft overhead. Major John F. Freely Jr. of the U.S. Army, who was in Kuwait City at the time, recalled, quote, I looked out my window and saw flashes across the horizon. It was like lightning, except it was coming from the wrong direction. It was coming from the ground up. What few Kuwaiti army units that could organize were quickly overrun. Citizens also attempted to resist the invasion, but were quickly pushed aside by heavily armored Iraqis. Sheikh Faid, the emir's brother, and his personal guard defended their position in the royal palace with their handguns and whatever else they could find, basically, but all were killed in the assault. By the time noon approached, Iraq had captured Kuwait. It had taken just seven hours. Yeah. 30,000 troops were ordered to occupy Kuwait City with another large number sent to the Kuwaiti-Saudi border because they were expecting the Saudis to do something. (laughs) On August 4th, the Republic of Kuwait was temporarily established as a puppet government of Iraq. According to Iraqi officials, the invasion was in support of, quote, Kuwaiti revolutionaries, end quote. The temporary government was made up of supposedly Kuwaiti military officials loyal to Iraq by intelligence documents provided to the Kuwaiti royal family of who was was in the, the puppet government. They declared that the Kuwaiti royal family said these are all Iraqis. So Iraqi forces began a crackdown on suspected resistance in the country, executing hundreds of suspected Kuwaiti loyalists. On August 28th, Kuwait was officially annexed as the 19th province of Iraq. Half of Kuwait's population fled the country, of which 400,000 were Kuwaiti citizens, the remainder being foreign nationals. Yeah, half the country left. India even began the evacuations of tens of thousands of Indian nationals from the country. Saddam designated his cousin Ali Hassan al-Majid as the Kuwaiti governor. Al-Majid is better known as Chemical Ali due to his use of chemical weapons against the Kurdish people during the Iran-Iraq war and to the wards the Iranian people. What a a nickname. Yeah. During the Al-Anfal campaign in Iran, Ali ordered chemical weapons to be used throughout Iraqi Kurdistan. Between 50,000 and 100,000 were murdered, and there are even claims the death toll are as high as 182,000. Under Ali's leadership, Kuwait was subject to a brutal campaign to weed out any pockets of resistance that may flare out in the governorate. He ordered the looting of the royal family's estates, as well as just Kuwait in general. In November, Ali was eventually recalled back to Iraq to act as separate government officialness. Bush was informed of the invasion almost immediately after it got 
underway, tipped off by the American embassy in Kuwait. He made a statement through his official through his officials condemning the invasion, demanding the immediate withdrawal of Iraqi troops from Kuwait's borders. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. I've got to go. Just like it's that quote to me, like, <laughs> I just always think of the big, it's, it's in the Big Lebowski. Yeah. <laughs> this will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. British PM Margaret Thatcher, who was in the United States on an official visit at the time, also condemned the invasion, stating, Iraq has violated and taken over the territory of a country which is a full member of the United Nations. That is totally unacceptable. And if it were allowed to endure, then there would be many other small countries that could never feel safe. And very certain that there's a light jab about that this is also a light jab about Granada because when the Americans invaded Granada she was pissed uh, because yeah. Granada is a member of the Commonwealth of Nations yeah. <laughs> the UN Security Council held a meeting to address the situation on the same day where they drafted resolution 660 the resolution condemned the invasion and called for the immediate withdrawal of Iraqi forces from Kuwait this was the first of 12 such resolutions passed by the Security Council during the conflict. 660 passed unanimously with only Yemen abstaining from the vote. Because Yemen had good relations with and contracts with Iraq. So it would not have been good. That's fair. In the Middle East, the response was mixed. Morocco, Algeria, and Lebanon condemned the invasion while others remained silent. King Hussein of Jordan called on the Arab countries to come together to bring a peaceful resolution between Iraq and Kuwait without the United States or other Western powers getting involved. Smart. It is. It's a decent idea. I don't think it would have worked. But... No, but I mean, it's like at least, I don't know, refreshing. Yeah. Hussein obviously it's a refreshing didn't... perspective, I yeah. suppose. The, the king obviously wasn't like anti-Western. He's just like, I don't think that they'll that's be what I'm, being involved. But that's what I mean. Like, yeah. it's 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 kind of refreshing to hear that sentiment where it's like, not saying we don't want them involved because it's anti-Western. It's just like, hey, let's just keep them out of here. It's better. Yeah, I mean... It'll be better for all of us. Jordan and the U.S. have long had good relations, so... Yeah. I really want to go to Jordan. It looks beautiful. Me too. The invasion was celebrated in Iraq with support coming in from the citizens of Yemen and Sudan as well. Places like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia were still viewed as artificial states cooked up by Western powers to serve their interests. The decision to divide the Middle East was seen as the root cause of tensions between the Arab people, which, yeah. <laughs> Let's be perfectly honest yes. here. Kuwait was also despised by some Arab people since they maintained close ties to the United States, which was Israel's biggest supporter. Mm. On August 6th, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 661, beginning economic sanctions against Iraq via trade restrictions. Meanwhile, Saddam worked to garner support against the growing coalition against him. He gave a list of demands aimed at diminishing Western influence in the Middle East. First, he called for all American military to withdraw from bases in Saudi Arabia to be replaced by forces from the League of Nations, or sorry, Arab League members. He also requested the sanctions on Iraq be lifted. 
He took things further when he demanded the Israeli withdrawal from all Palestinian land, which was never going to be accepted, let's be honest. He even offered a beneficial trade deal with the United States. He stated once the demands were met, Iraq would, would withdraw from Kuwait. Understandably, the United States looked at these demands and didn't even consider them. To much surprise, Saddam finally made peace with Iran after this, like long after the ceasefire, which the two had been in this, which had they'd been in since 1988. This effect effectively prevented any chance Iran had of joining a coalition against the against Iraq. Because yeah, Iran was pretty close to joining the the coalition against Iraq, which is interesting. During this time, around 4,000 British and 2,500 Americans were living in Kuwait. While many managed to escape, plenty were prevented by Iraqi soldiers. They also took hostage an entire British Airways flight after it landed in Kuwait City during layover to India. Diplomatic efforts to secure the release of the foreign nationals was a main priority in the immediate aftermath of the, intervent of the invasion, understandably. Mm -hmm. Thousands of these foreigners were, were transferred to Baghdad, where the Iraqi government claimed they were, quote, hosts to them. However, they were to be used as human shields to prevent direct bombing on key Iraqi government buildings. Some hosts they are. Right? Hostage Stuart Lockwood, a British national who was five at the time and actually wrote an amazing article for The Guardian, recalled that the Iraqi soldiers were actually really kind to them and treated everyone really well and he even recalled they made a cake and had a party for one of the kids when it was when they found out it was his birthday wow. yeah so they, the soldiers actually gave a shit like make makes sense like i i i understand that like these are just regular people mm -hmm. saddam probably didn't give a shit but these soldiers were like well i don't want them to come to harm like what if well they... and i mean i also imagine there's there's motivation to keep them alive as well yeah but as but also just yeah they're people that they're don't... people they're children yeah like in a notorious televised event saddam had the hostages shown with him like on international tv basically he was very much showing them off like yeah. saying hey look what i got you want to try bombing me that was totally what it was. Lockwood was the child shown next to Saddam in the live event. There's a famous photo of a child, and that's who Lockwood is. Lockwood recalled Saddam asked questions such as, do you have milk with your breakfast? And even attempted to have the boy sit in his lap. Saddam eerily stated during the event, we hope your presence as guests here will not be for too long. Your presence here and in other places is meant to prevent the scourge of war. Yeah. That would be wildly uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, Lockwood said in his article that, like, uh, the reason it wasn't because it was Saddam that he kind of shipped it away from trying to get on his lap, but he's just like stranger danger in general. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't they probably, because he probably was too young to fully understand how bad, like, who Saddam was. Yeah, ex exactly. So it's just like, you're a strange man with a yeah. big mustache. No, thank you. And he <laughs> said it was a very strange experience because up to that point, these soldiers were super nice to them and like yeah. really treated them well. And then they brought and like were relaxed around them. Like they yeah. didn't have their guns around them or yeah, anything. Yeah, they, yeah. they would play with them and yeah. like hold a birthday party for them. Yeah. And uh, but then they were brought to yeah. in front of Saddam and then they were just dead serious. Lockwood's family didn't want him to go. And but a soldier just lightly put his hand on 
on his father's soldier and said, you, you, you really need, you really need to like, just let the kid go. Yeah. And I think that's, it's for your own, it's in your own best. Yeah. Interest. I think it was totally just to ensure the safety of both Lockwood and his, and his parents. hundred percent. Yeah. So, cause I, cause like there's definitely, you don't turn down Saddam. No. And there's definitely, you definitely like hostage takers and hostages have been known to like take, get a, there's a give and take. Yeah. And it's like, it's not like, these people, like, I'm not saying that they have the other... I don't really agree with the excuse of they were ordered to. Like, no. I was ordered to do it. But in this case, it's like, okay, we were ordered to take them hostages, but we weren't ordered to treat them like shit. So we're not going to treat them like shit. Yeah, exactly. We're going to follow the order to the letter of the order, which is we had to take them. Yeah, that's it. Full stop. We're going to treat these people well. So Reverend Jesse Jackson, Muhammad Ali, and former German Chancellor Willy Brandt all traveled to Baghdad to directly negotiate with Saddam for the release of the hostages. That's an interesting group of people. Isn't it? Saddam yeah. agreed to release the women and children, but he kept the men. It's almost like Dennis Rodman going to North Korea. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how did these people... Except that Muhammad Ali was like a noted activist and Dennis Rodman yeah. was not, but still. Yeah, but how did these people get together is what i <laughs> how did those three people get together i mean like two of the three make sense but willie brandt like, like, well okay like, yeah, that's, yeah. but that's what i mean like like two of the three at least in getting together makes sense with jesse jackson and ali it's like okay yeah but yeah willie like one of these is not like the others yeah like, so it's just, i just am interested to know how willie brandt there's a got story involved. there i mean i kind of i understand why willie brandt got involved if you don't know who willie brandt is he was probably one of the best german chancellors ever yeah um <laughs> but yeah, they, these three managed to secure the release of the women and children. Yeah, so on November 29th, 1990, the United Nations Security Council authorized the quote, all necessary means of force against Iraq if it did not withdraw from Kuwait by the following January 15th. By January, the coalition forces prepared to face off against Iraq numbered some 750,000, including 540,000 U.S. personnel and smaller forces from Britain, France, Germany, the Soviet Union, Japan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, among others. Iraq, for its part, had the support of Jordan, another vulnerable neighbor, Algeria, the Sudan, Yemen, Tunisia, and the Palestinian, Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the PLO. Before all of this, I guess, leading up to it, in, um, on, August 7th, on August 7th, 1990, President George H.W. Walker, or sorry, George H.W. Bush, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh. It's been a long day, everybody. Oh, my God, my brain. Um, anyway, ordered the organization of Oper Operation Desert Shield in response to the Iraqi evasion of, in Kuwait. Um, the order prepared American troops to become part of an international coalition in the war against Iraq that would be launched as Operation Desert Storm in January 1991. But anyway, to support Operation Desert Shield, Bush authorized a dramatic increase in U.S. troops and resources in the Persian Gulf. Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein and, well, hardline Iraqi nationalists had always believed that Kuwait should be part of Iraq, but nationalist propaganda aside, uh, controlling the oil fields was obviously his primary interest. Yeah, in addition, control of Kuwait represented a strategic military objective against should it be forced to fight with any of its Western-friendly Arab neighbors. Um, Hussein calculated incorrectly that the United States and the UN, who were closely tracking Iraq's military buildup along the border, would not try to stop him. However, when Iraqi ground forces entered Kuwait, President Bush, like we mentioned, said he would, quote, not stand <laughs> for this, would not stand for this aggression, and vowed to help Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. 
That was just a little recap, including a terrible impression. Um, anyway, back to the story on November 29th and the United Nations um, authorizing the use of all means necessary to get rid of Saddam from Kuwait. Um, they gave Iraq the deadline of midnight, January 16th, 1991, to risk or, or to leave or risk forcible removal. Basically, it's like, I'm going to count to three. <laughs> when I get to three, <laughs> you better not still be in Kuwait. <laughs> After negotiations between U.S. Secretary of State James Baker and Iraq's Foreign Minister Tariq Aziz failed, Congress authorized President Bush to use American troops in the coming conflict. Just after midnight, on January 17th in the U.S., Bush gave the order for U.S. troops to lead an international coalition in an attack on Saddam Hussein's army. The Gulf War began with an extensive aerial, aerial bombing campaign. So for 42 consecutive days and nights, the coalition forces subjected Iraq to one of the most intensive air bombardments in military history. The coalition flew over 100,000 sorties, dropping 88,500 tons of, bomb, or of bombs, which widely destroyed military and civilian infrastructure. The campaign was commanded by U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General Chuck Horner, who briefly served as U.S. Central Command's Commander-in-Chief forward while General Schwarzkopf was still in the U.S. A day after the deadline was set in Resolution 678, the coalition launched a massive air campaign which began the general offensive Operation Desert Storm. The priority was the destruction of Iraq's Air Force and anti-aircraft facilities. These sorties were launched mostly from Saudi Arabia <laughs> and... Six carrier, bat carrier battle groups. That is way harder to say than I thought. <laughs> CV CVBG, all the aircraft carriers, in the Persian were launched in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. The next targets were command and communication facilities. Saddam had closely micromanaged Iraqi forces in the Iran-Iraq War, and initiative at lower levels was very discouraged, which is really not how you should run a military. But no. anyway, coalition planners hoped that Iraqi resistance would quickly collapse if deprived in command of command and control, which was probably the case. The air campaign's third and largest phase targeted military targets throughout Iraq and Kuwait, uh, Scud missile launchers, weapons uh, research facilities, and naval forces. About a third of the coalition's air power was devoted to attacking Scuds, some of which were on trucks and therefore difficult to locate. Uh, U.S. and British Special Operations Forces had been covertly inserted into western Iraq to aid and search for and destruction of these Scud missiles. Iraqi anti-aircraft defenses, including man-portable air defense systems, were surprisingly ineffective against enemy aircraft. <laughs> Not really great to have your anti-aircraft defenses be useless. <laughs> and the coalition suffered only 75 aircraft losses and over 100,000 sorties. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Only 44 of the 75 aircraft losses were due to Iraqi action. Yeah. Yeah, so two of these losses are the result of aircraft colliding with the ground while evading Iraqi ground-fired weapons, and one of them was a confirmed air-to-air -air victory. So, for the most part, though, didn't really do much. No. But yeah, Iraq's government made no secret that it would attack if they were invaded. I mean, obviously. <laughs> Prior to the start of the war and the aftermath of the failed peace talks in Geneva, a reporter asked... Iraq's English-speaking foreign minister and deputy prime minister, Tariq Aziz, um, you know, if the war starts, Mr. Foreign Minister, will you attack? And his response was, yeah, absolutely yes. <laughs> Duh. Anyway, so five hours after the first attacks, Iraq's state radio broadcast declared that, quote, the dawn of victory nears as this great showdown begins. Ominous. The, the propaganda machine was getting rolling. That's Iraq's version of mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Iraq fired eight missiles the next day. These missiles were to continue throughout the war. Iraq fired 88 Scud missiles during the war seven weeks, which is a lot. Um, Iraq hoped to provoke a military response from Israel. 
the Iraqi government hoped that many Arab states would withdraw from the coalition as they be reluctant to fight alongside Israel. Following the first attacks, Israeli Air Force jets were deployed to patrol the northern airspace with Iraq. Israel prepared to militarily, militarily retaliate, <clears throat> as its policy for the previous 40 years had always been retaliation. But President Bush reassured Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir not to retaliate and withdraw all Israeli jets, fearing that if Israel attacked Iraq, the other Arab nations would either desert the coalition or join Iraq. It was also feared that if Israel used Syrian or, J or Jordanian airspace to attack Iraq, that they would intervene in the war on Iraq's side or attack Israel. So the coalition promised to deploy Patriot missiles to defend Israel if it, if it refrained from responding to the, to the Scud attacks. So that was good. <laughs> Hussein's plan to uh, go to Israel into a holy war was, fo was foiled by the U.S., and following an intense bombing of Baghdad, uh, the U.S.-led coalition ground forces marched into Kuwait and across the Iraq border. So, on January 29th, Iraqi forces attacked and occupied the lightly defended Saudi city of Kafji with tanks and infantry. The Battle of Kafji ended two days later when the Iraqis were driven back by the Saudi Arabian National Guard, supported by Qatari forces and U.S. Marines. Yeah, the regular army, was Iraq army, was driven back by the Saudi National Guard. It's not great look for Iraq. <laughs> The Allied, well, I mean, they, had, I do, they did have some Marines on their side, but still. Yeah, I will explain why, like, it, the Iraq ar regular army wasn't so, quote-unquote, strong, but then yeah. you'll totally understand. Yeah, the Allied forces used extensive artillery fire. Uh, both sides suffered a lot of casualties, although Iraqi forces sustained substantially more dead and captured than the Allied forces, which makes sense. The Battle of Kafji was an example of how air power could single-handedly hinder the advance of enemy ground forces. Upon learning of Iraqi trap movements, 140 coalition aircraft were diverted to an attack and advancing column consisting of two armored divisions and battalion-sized units. Precision standoff attacks were conducted during the night and through to the next day. Iraqi vehicle losses included 357 tanks, 147 armored personnel carriers, 89 mobile artillery pieces, and uh, some crews simply just abandoned their vehicles upon realizing that they could be destroyed by, by guided bombs and uh, just stopped the armored divisions from going anywhere. <laughs> One Iraqi soldier who had fought in the Iran-Iraq war remarked that his brigade, quote, sustained more punishment from allied air power in 30 minutes at Kafji than in eight years of fighting against Iran. Jesus. Yeah. So now the desert storm is about to begin. The, the, the ground force, or the ground attack at least. Uh, but before that, plans for deception were drafted with American and British forces leaving deception cells to the southeast. So just small numbers of brigade divisions made to look larger than they are to suggest a buildup in this area. So a potential attack in that area. The cells constructed an electronic network which generated simulations of high volume VHF UHF traffic. So radio chatter between coalition forces. Iraqi intelligence intercepted these sig signals and believed most of the coalition forces remained entrenched to the south. Furthermore, fake bunkers were constructed and decoy vehicles, including fake tanks, were brought to the location as a ploy. On February 15th, the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division were, placed, were ordered to push into Iraq at the Kuwaiti-Iraqi border. The first night consisted of engineers breaching the Iraqis' defensive berm, well, the 3rd 82nd Field Artillery Regiment bombarded the Iraqi positions. Just after midnight on the 16th, the 82nd conducted a night attack of 
Iraqi radar then moved in to take the position as the Iraqis retreated. The final part of the feint was the evening of February 19th. First Cavalry pushed over the border and engaged the Iraqi army. In the skirmish, three American soldiers were killed, nine were wounded, and four armored units were damaged or destroyed. It is unknown the number of Iraqi KIA or wounded. During the battle, a Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle, or IFV, was hit, but putting it out of commission. Sergeant Ronald Rondazzo, the Bradley's gunner, was killed and two others were injured. A second Bradley, under the command of Staff Sergeant Christopher Chicone, moved to evacuate the wounded, while still under heavy fire. Private First Class Arden Cooper used his own body as a shield to protect the wounded men from incoming fire, and received a net wound from artillery shrapnel. Then an anti-take round struck the Bradley, showering Cooper with bits of shrapnel from the, from the um, damaged vehicle, mortally wounding him. Despite the damage received, the Bradley was still operational and successfully evacuated the wounded back to friendly lines. Cooper later died from his wounds, and he was posthumously awarded the Silver Star. Chacon also received the Silver Star for his actions. The battle was a tactical victory for Iraq, but successfully fooled them into believing the coalition forces remained in large at that location. Thus, the Iraqis moved their positions to reinforce. The real plan was for coalition forces to make a crescent-shaped sweeping movement into the now lightly defended southern Iraq. Meanwhile, Arab forces would maintain defensive positions on the borders to prevent a counterattack. The idea was to trap Iraqi forces in Kuwait, sever lines of communication, and block retreating Iraqi forces. Saddam has ordered his weakest and least equipped forces to the border with the elite Republican Guard positioned further north in the desert. Most of those on the front line were unwilling conscripts who don't want to be there or who even don't support Saddam Hussein. That's why it was so weak, as Lindsay mentioned earlier. These people didn't want to fight. They didn't like Saddam. They were put in a hopeless situation. Like, like how are you going to react to it, right? At 5.30 a.m. on February 24th, coalition forces pushed into Iraq and Kuwait. The U.S. Marine divisions on the right flank engaged Iraqi forces. Iraqi artillery fired back wildly, having no forward observers and therefore just shot and hoped they would hit something. They scored no hits. 109 coalition artillery guns fire back and pound the Iraqi positions. Within 30 minutes, the Iraqi position surrenders and the Marines reach the first minefield. There are several minefields that they had to, that were just long and like all along this huge line that coalition forces needed to pass through. And the way they cleared these fields was they fired explosive laced cables into the minefield and then detonated them which would clear the mines underneath the ground. Special tank then moves forward with, with a, it was basically an armored bolt, like a tank bulldozer, which would smooth out the ground for the other armor to get through. Um, and then to clear out the rest of the minefield, these special APCs would move forward, fire the cables again, and then, do, and then repeat. Within 45 minutes, the first route through the minefield was cleared. This was quick. <laughs> 
18 Corps, made up of French and American divisions, engaged Iraqi positions to the west. To prevent mass, mass casualties, their advance was slow. Uh, they too easily defeated the first Iraqi position. So many Iraqi soldiers surrendered, processing all of the POWs slowed down the advance. It was up to 3,000 Iraqis surrendered almost immediately uh, at the first position. And then you have to wait, process these POWs as part of the Geneva Convention, and then before you can move forward. Furthermore, heavy rain and sandstorms slowed the advance a lot across the entire coalition line. So literally Desert Storm was a storm. The Marines were advancing so quickly, they ended up eight hours ahead of schedule. This leaves them vulnerable to their left flank, and as a result, American General Norman Schwarzkopf ordered the Joint Forces Command, which were made up of Saudi, Egyptian, and even Syrian troops, and 7th Corps, which I just call V Corps, proceed with their advance across the border despite not being scheduled to do so until the next day. Had they not done so, the there was a risk that the Marine divisions would have been outflanked and like flanked and possibly trapped. Mm. So, which, okay. even against a weak, like weakish yeah. enemy, yeah. you don't want that to happen. Yeah. So, prior to engaging what it was known as the Saddam Line, eleven thousand artillery shells were fired at the Iraqi positions. V Corps moved forward towards the enemy, and for the first time that day, coalition forces actually had to engage the enemy directly because the enemy didn't. Surrender. <laughs> the enemy actually fought back. The Iraqis are entrenched and in bunkers all along the line. Despite this, V Corps breached through the defenses. It was a controversial move because armored bulldozers pushed whatever sand and dirt was in front of them into the trenches to fill them up and then let armor go across. Over 150 Iraqi soldiers were buried alive as a result. So imagine being buried alive and then having a tank run over you Ugh. in the sand yeah Ugh. it's still quite a content thing of contention today rightfully so yeah because that's horrific brutal. like a chemical weapons are a pretty horrific way to die and so is being buried alive like there's and, there's there's violence in a war and then there's brutality yeah so that's definitely brutality yeah I mean, as much as you can argue, well, they could have gone around out of the way. They could have surrendered. No, fuck that. They should not be buried alive. No. By the end of the first day, coalition forces are hours ahead of schedule. Processing of POWs continues to slow down the advance as thousands continue to surrender rather than engage. Again, these were just conscripts that were forced to, that didn't want to, like, they weren't volunteers. They were forced to do it and put at basically as a human shield for the much more advanced Republican Guard, which the coalition would soon face. They're the they're Iraq's elite force, or they were at least the elite force. These are the guys that are actually well trained and equipped and willing to fight, actually loyal to Saddam. So coalition forces met their first fierce resistance starting February 26th. Defending their positions were the Iraq's Republican Guard, which, as I said, were the most loyal and best trained of the Iraqi army. The Republican Guard were equipped with Soviet T-72 modern battle tanks, or MBTs, which were fitted with 125mm cannon and fired, could fire eight rounds per minute. It had thick armor capable of stopping American tank rounds. However, it lacked both night vision and thermals. 
and support were BMP infantry fighting vehicles or IVFs or IF, IFVs, excuse me. The American 7th Corps, 1st through 3rd Armored Divisions were equipped with M1A2 Abrams modern battle tanks, supported by M2 Bradley IFVs. The members of the 7th Corps were well trained, both had thermal and night vision capabilities. This becomes important. The Republican Guard was expected to have the advantage with heavy American casualties because the Republican Guard were fucking tough. The Republican Guard believed the Americans would be advancing from the main road and thus entrenched themselves in the in a town facing said road. Their armor was dug into the south of the village along the trenches and bunkers. However, Americans had access to GPS, which was actually a new technology at this time. It had never been used in warfare before. The American forces instead surprised the Iraqis by arriving from the surrounding desert. Out of the firing sights of the Iraqi armor. It feels a little bit like what the Nazis did to France in the Maginot Line. Yeah, pretty much. Well, yeah, because they did that. It's like, oh, we're expecting them to come from here. Nope, they're coming from here. Oh, just kidding. Tanks take down trees. They're sweeping around. (laughs) And yeah, with and then here it's like, oh, the tanks can go through the desert. Oh shit. Yeah. It's like Um, basically instead of oh shit, the tanks can go through trees. It's oh shit, the tanks can go through the desert. Yeah. Yeah. The Abrams engaged at the front with the Bradleys in support positions. With the help of thermal vision, the Abrams were able to take out the T-72s in less than a minute of first engagement. Because they could just pin, they could just use these thermals and see the heat signatures from the... Because yeah. the tanks are hot. <laughs> this allowed them to advance to their initial limit of engagement at 70 Easting. Despite being ordered not to exceed 70 Easting, Commander H.R. McMaster, which is a pretty awesome name, <laughs> realized the decisive capability of the armor and decided to advance further. This may seem like... Treason- TLDR? Fuck it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this may seem... Like, a lot of people may read, like listen to this and be like, that sounds like... He's disobeying go, orders. He's disobeying orders. But American junior officers were actually trained to take the initiative and be flexible, mm-hmm. understanding the fast pace of modern warfare because they knew warfare was changing. It was more fast paced. Like, I think mm-hmm. World War II kind of really showed that. Even, well, Vietnam was actually even, Vietnam, an even yeah. better example. Yeah. Iraq operated under the top-down structure, meaning officers were limited in what they could do in changing situations. It's like, sir, can I move it? No, you were ordered to do this. But if we do this, no, Stay you there. were ordered to do this. It's basically a way. Initiative to... was definitely discouraged. Yeah. Whereas in the American, American Army. Army, it was encouraged. I mean, obviously to some level. Yeah. It, still a military. As you're about to... <laughs> E-Troop continued to advance to the next ridgeline at 73 Easting. They caught the Iraqi T-72 stationed there off guard as they were still awaiting command. Severed communications by the airstrikes made relaying orders extremely difficult. Well, because unlike the Americans, they don't have planes that, you know, can bounce communications that are flying overhead. (laughs) At a range of a thousand yards, the Americans were able to destroy most of the Iraqi armor. As the remainder attempted to retreat, the Abrams moved in and destroyed whatever remained. American forces now occupied the high ground of the area, giving them the final decisive advantage. While regrouping at a new position, E-Group was engaged by companies worth of T-72s and BMPs. With Allied artillery suppressing enemy infantry, E-Troop was able to push back the counterattack with the use of the Abrams firepower and the Bradley's tow anti-aircraft. 
or sorry, tow anti-tank missiles. The battle lasted a total of 23 minutes and was a decisive victory for the American forces. Six Americans were killed with 19 wounded and one Bradley destroyed. Meanwhile, the Iraqis suffered between 600 and 1,000 KIA, 1,300 POWs, 160 tanks, 180 APCs, and 12 heavily artillery destroyed. So it's very one-sided. Yeah. Even, even though they expected the Republican Guard to have the advantage, they did not have that strategic or command advantage because they didn't, They again, they didn't adapt to the possibility, hey, maybe they'll come in from the desert. Mm-hmm. Considered the last great tank battle of the 20th century, and as far as I know, it's probably the last great tank battle to date. Probably. I'm pretty, like, I, I don't know. I can't think of anything. Probably, yeah. So, um, it was also the first battle to use GPS, as I mentioned, and as well as the combination of thermal and night vision. Following this battle, all future tanks in the in the American Army were required to have both functions. Makes sense. The battle has been studied across the world by other powers and inspired many to adopt similar flexible American strategy, although there was, st- there was still some like Russia uh, who were kind of like, like I just... Mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is also considered the beginning of the end what is known as the Vietnam Syndrome, which is American reluctance to intervene as a result of their loss in Vietnam. And yes, they lost Vietnam. Like, yeah. Stop arguing. <laughs> <laughs> it was also the first time American forces engaged an enemy at such a scale, at least, since its restructuring of the military following the Vietnam War. Shit. Yeah. With the success of the flanking maneuver, coalition forces starting to push into southern Kuwait. Much to their surprise, they met little resistance and the chemical attacks they were certain were were going to happen never happened. Iraqi forces in Kuwait were heavily weakened by the constant weeks of air campaign and thus had neither the strength or even the will to fight. Morale was at an all-time low. The lack of communication from the outside meant most had no idea what was happening aside from the constant bombardment and many Iraqis simply wanted to surrender and go home. Coalition forces were met with thousands upon thousands of surrendering Iraqis, up to 5,000 in the first day. Although almost the entire front line was lined with white flags. Like, literally, they would show, like, the coalition would show up ready for a fight, but just see white flags all up along the line. Because coalition soldiers were also greeted with Iraqi soldiers crawling towards them crying begging mercy and allegedly kissing the hands of the soldiers this was a shock to the americans just like oh like it's kind of expecting this uh... well they've been like they were taught to learn like these are this is the enemy these are the bad people but no these are like well they're expecting a fight like you're invading someone's country yeah (laughs) and it's also you gotta expect like it must be a bit traumatic to see how horrified like how scared the other side is of being annihilated that they're down to a level of like crawling begging, on the knees yeah. begging and crying like they might be the enemy but you're you're still human right yeah coalition focus shift to shifted to the potential threat and regrouping of the republican guard Ten thousand coalition troops pressed on towards kuwait city with american saudi and kuwaiti forces leading the charge meanwhile the american tiger brigade raced west to cut off any Iraqi forces attempting to escape Iraq, into Iraq. 
Retreating Iraqi soldiers set fire to hundreds of oil wells across Kuwait in the scorched earth tactic. In total, between 605 and 732 wells were set alight. This includes oil wells, oil lakes, and fire trenches. And this is kind of also where the night vision stuff comes in handy because if you've ever seen Jarhead, like the scenes from where they're like showing the burning Kuwait or Kuwaiti like oil fields, that is like the one of the only one of the resonating images from that movie for yeah. me. That and the like the boredom that they tried to portray in the movie of all the troops just being bored out of their minds because they weren't actually facing any resistance they're just yeah. rolling <laughs> yeah it's a jar it's an interesting movie because it definitely shows the kind of mundanity of yeah. modern war yeah as weird as it sounds yeah so. especially when yeah like an immovable force is meeting a very stoppable object yeah exactly. <laughs> Iraqi soldiers in Kuwait City knew they stood no chance of defeating the coalition and decided to escape before the coalition reached them. Before leaving, they plundered the city, looting homes and businesses and allegedly raping women. Which, you know what, it's probably true. I, I say allegedly, but let's be honest. Yeah, like, and this it's, is a, pretty, something it's that, a pretty classic military yeah. thing. They then packed what they could onto their trucks and other vehicles and proceeded north on Highway 80 towards Basra. At the same time, an Iraqi missile struck a barracks in Dahran, killing 60 American servicemen. As I, I, I watched, there's a clip from a History Channel doc, and the guy said we were told to put the hate in our hearts, get in our aircraft, and they'd be waiting for us when we got back. That's all they were told. And where they were going, basically. So... You can imagine why this get like why this gets out of hand right here. So while they were while the Iraqis were still loading, the Tiger Brigade was spotted approaching the city. In a panic, they, the the Iraqis fled to the highway. With the mass number attempting to flee all at once, they became jammed on the road. So this is like <sighs> thousands and thousands. Idiots. Think traffic jam. Think Iraq. Think L.A rush hour like but Iraqi military yeah. vehicles on February 26th Tiger Brigade was within range and opened fire meanwhile American planes were given the green light to fly over and take out any Iraqi movement in the area think the broken arrow scene in we were soldiers yeah. but like that's what they were given all authority drop whatever you got yeah. the bombarded lasted 40 hours by the time the dust settled on the 27th, up to 2,700 vehicles were destroyed and over 1,000 were killed, while a, third, a further 2,000 were captured. The length of the wreckage was close to three miles long. If you ever hear the term highway of death the, during this war, this is the highway of death. The incident has heavily been criticized as a breach of the Geneva Convention, which forbids the killing of any forces attempting to flee or surrender, which... It's true. Yeah. It's kind of hard to say whether I feel bad for them or not because how because like I know it's alleged that they were raping women and whatnot, yeah. but it's like one of those things where it's like, let's be honest, they probably were. Well, and they looted everything. Like, they were they fleeing. Looted. They were fleeing after looting the place. Yeah. Like. Mm. American and Kuwaiti forces met with Iraqi resistance at the at Kuwait City, the first and second Marine Division, Second Armor Tiger Brigade. And special forces engaged against several Iraqi armor and infantry divisions. 
Despite attempts to escape into the desert, Iraqi forces were unable to push through the coalition forces and were either killed or surrendered. Casualties for Iraq still remain unknown and are listed as heavy. The Americans suffered 19 KIA, 48 wounded, and 11 armored destroyed or damaged. Upon entering the city, Lieutenant General Walter Boomer, which is another interesting and great army name, <laughs> was greeted by a crowd of Kuwaiti citizens who cheered and tossed him a Kuwaiti flag. Iraqi flags were torn down, portraits of Saddam were burned, and citizens shouted praise at the coalition forces. On February 28th, the Republican Guard finally surrendered to coalition forces. Having seen the devastation done to the highway of death and knowing Kuwait City had been liberated, Bush Sr. decided to seek a ceasefire with Iraq. Bush chose not to continue the fight into Iraq to oust Saddam, knowing there would be international outcry since the UN designated mission was to liberate Kuwait and it was now complete. I call this hindsight. Iraqi and coalition officials met in Safwan, Iraq on March 3rd, and a ceasefire was agreed to. This officially brought an end to the Gulf War. So we got like 650 oil fires now lit all across Kuwait. And they're just left there. The crude oil was spilled onto the sand and from a further 75 damaged wells and even into the Persian Gulf. Poisonous smoke plumes blew across the desert, bringing ash and oil into the air because some of these fires were as high as 50 meters. Black rain was a common danger in nearby cities and villages. And I can't explain to you how deadly black rain can be. The combination of sand and gravel with oil and soot formed hard tarcrete patches across 5% of Kuwait's land area. It was estimated to take between two and five years for the wells to lose enough pressure to extinguish on their own. Understanding the potential environmental and economic disaster, 38 countries sent firefighter crews to combat the blazes, totaling 11,450 personnel. The workers dubbed the job Operation Desert Hell. NASA also joined the fight uh, as they observed and relayed plume directions to ground crew to ground workers actively fighting the fires in order to assess where such hazardous smoke was going. Over a seven-month period, firefighters worked around the clock to cap and extinguish these fires using technology either never previously used before or having been hastily developed to combat these situation. They were constantly covered in oil and soot and often became dizzy or were fainting as a result of the conditions. 90% of the fires were able to be extinguished with seawater sprayed from powerful hoses. In fact, they actually repurposed the damaged oil pipeline to transport seawater to the front to these fires. Workers were able to extinguish one fire every week to 10 days at the start of the of the campaign but soon they were able to speed that up to every two days as a result of of experience dynamite was also used to extinguish particularly troublesome wells the resulting blast wave would push all of the oxygen away and the from the burning fuel thus suffocating the fire and apparently this is the same kind of idea of why blowing out like how blowing a candle out works between April and November 1991, wells were extinguished as quickly as possible. The final well was capped on November 6th. An estimated 1.5 billion barrels of oil was released into the environment, either in smoke plumes or directly into the Persian Gulf. 
Between 25 and 40 million barrels were spread across the desert, while 11 million ended up in the Gulf itself. In comparison, a 5 million was spilled into the Gulf of Mexico during the Deepwater Horizon disaster. As of 2012, 21 billion barrels worth of oil has been cleaned from the desert, while an estimated 1 million remains. I think, honestly, we could do a whole episode on the extinguishing of these fires on its own, just because of the environmental disaster this was because there's like yeah. there are literally people saying let's just wait until they burn out on their own in like five years no. are you kidding me no right so on uh, march 3rd general schwarzkopf met with iraqi generals at safwan airfield iraq to negotiate the terms of the ceasefire of particular interest was establishing the lines of demarcation and, and exchange of pow's uh, Schwarzkopf was also hell-bent on establishing no-fly zones to prevent Iraq from flying any fixed-wing aircraft. One general requested Iraq to be allowed to continue flying aircraft in order to transport government officials across the country, as most of the roads were heavily damaged or destroyed. Feeling no reason to distrust their request, Schwarzkopf allowed this without notifying his superiors in Washington. Through Voice of America, Bush made two separate pleas directed at the Iraqi people. The first was on February 15th, where he said, there is another way for the bloodshed to stop, and that is for the Iraqi military and the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands and force Saddam Hussein, the dictator, to step aside and then comply with the United Nations resolutions and rejoin the family of peace-loving nations. I was trying to imitate his voice. You did a good you. job, actually. <laughs> <laughs> did I actually do it okay? Yeah. Cool. Sweet. He made the same call on March 1st, the day after the ceasefire. Inspired by either Bush's words or the failure of Iraq's military in Kuwait, to end almost simultaneously, the Shias in southern Iraq and the Kurds in northern Iraq began uprisings against Saddam. The first major clashes occurred in Basra, uh, situated in a small stretch of Iraq between Iran and Kuwait. On March 3rd, an Iraqi division was returning to the city made up of battle-fatigued soldiers. An Iraqi tank commander, disillusioned with Saddam's regime, angrily fired a tank shell at a portrait of the dictator hung in the city center. After, the city erupted into cheers from both soldiers and citizens. News spread across Iraq, and soon people became inspired. Within days, unarmed citizens of Basra, Naziria, and Karbala marched en masse to their local government buildings and took control. This also included freeing prisoners and taking weapons caches. Because, you know, of course. <laughs> Many members of the army, including officers, deserted and joined the rebellion. Meanwhile, in the north, uh, the Kurd forces of Peshmerga and an alliance between the KDP and PUK forces gained control of their town in Rania on March 5th. This rebellion spread to other Peshmerga groups, citizens, and army deserters throughout the north, and soon they took the city of Suleimania near the border with Iran. There, rebels took the local security, or local central security headquarters. They discovered remnants of the horrors of Saddam's regime, including blood-soaked rooms, torture devices, bodies of persons strangled or otherwise mutilated, many of whom were men women and children. Out of disgust and revenge, rebels took out their anger by killing any captured Ba'athist officials and police officers they found. By the time Suleimania fell, the northern rebels were made up of a combination of Peshmerga, Islamic Kurdish groups, communists, army deserters, and ordinary citizens, Kurdish, Arab, and various other minority groups. Together, they were able to take Kirkuk, Iraq's fourth largest city. So far, the rebellion was <clears throat> having a lot of success, with 14 of Iraq's 16 provinces falling into rebel control. However, part of what drove these rebellions to take place was the belief that the United States would support them. <laughs> Cute. Yeah. However, this hope would never come. Aside from moral verbal support, the U.S. provided no material support for the rebels. Furthermore, the Americans were suspicious of the Shia rebels in the south, thinking they were supported by the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
as the rebel groups came within kilometers of Baghdad. Saddam knew he would have to take the initiative. He ordered his Republican guard to move on to and recapture Karbala. While, rebe while rebels did make an attempt to hold, they were not prepared for such a fierce attack and they were forced to flee. Soon after, the guards moved, or the, the guards moved on Az or Basra. Iraqi armor peppered the city with machine gun fire before moving in. It is reported that citizens were tied to the tanks and used as human shields. Yeah. Basra fell into Saddam's hands just a week after it was taken by the rebels. In Karbala, Shiite shrines were destroyed in retaliation, and some were given, even converted into makeshift torture and execution grounds. Lovely. Following the success in the south, Saddam's forces turned north and targeted the Kurdish communities. The army targeted hospitals with artillery, and the Kurds were at a disadvantage as most of their cities were located in valleys surrounded by mountains. This made them almost impossible to defend. Without any other choice, the fighters fled into the mountains along with their families and any others who wished to escape. In a cruel example of psychological torture, Iraqi helicopter crews dumped large amounts of flour on fleeing rebels and civilians. This caused panic as memories of the chemical weapons attacks were still, bur or was, were still burned in their eyes. It's not awful. Like, like, ugh. <sighs> it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. In total, two million Kurds fled into the mountains, and there was a high estimate of 2,000 Kurds dying a day. Further, 1,000 people across Iraq, quote-unquote, disappeared. A film showing the time frame was later found during the Iraq War, showing Kemiko Ali physically abusing prisoners. An estimated 20,000 Kurds were killed, and between 30,000 and 60,000 Shias were killed. Even as of the present day, mass graves from the time are still being discovered in Iraq's north and south. The failure of the uprisings is seen as a betrayal by the United States against the rebels. It has been claimed Bush feared Iraq would fall into the same situation as Lebanon. Secretary of State James Baker further said that there were fears Iraq would turn into another Vietnam situation, which again, hindsight. Furthermore, the Americans refused to hand over captured Iraqi weapons to the insurgents, instead having them destroyed, turned to Iraqi officials, and even transferred them to the Afghan Mujahideen. In April, coalition forces began enforcing the newly established no-fly zones in northern and southern Iraq. The northern zone lay above the 36th parallel, while the south stretched from the 33rd parallel down. Enforcing the no-fly zones were the U.S., U.K., France, Australia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Italy, Netherlands, and Belgium. <clears throat> the, official no or the official mission was to protect humanitarian operations set up in Iraq. However, the no-fly zones were not actually authorized by the U.N. Schwarzkopf is even alleged to have said to the Iraqi generals, you fly, you die. <laughs> American generals, they're very brash. I think that's probably part of getting the job. <laughs> the aggressive nature of the no-fly zones were seen as retaliation against the brutality um, Iraq air superiority allegedly had against the rebellions. However, this claim is disputed as there are claims Iraq used little to no air power to quell the uprisings, while others, including Shorpskov, charge that they were. The no-fly zones went into full operation in 1992. This was extended to a no-drive zone in the south out of fear of renewed Iraqi aggression towards Kuwait. The United States would conduct frequent bombing runs on Iraqi anti-air defenses, which were seen as a threat to patrolling aircraft. American harassment of Saddam continued throughout the 90s. Constant bombings of facilities and pressure to allow weapons inspections finally was too much, and Saddam expelled UN officials in 1998. Despite the massive defeat in 1991, the Kurds continued to fight for their sovereignty. The no-fly zone didn't include urban centers such as Kirkuk, Suleimania, and other centers with large Kurdish populations, and these became popular locations for clashes between the Iraqi and Kurdish forces. 
In order to end the violence and withdraw his forces elsewhere, Saddam agreed to recognize the autonomy of Iraqi Kurdistan, allowing it to act as a semi-independent state while it remained part of Iraq. And despite gaining their autonomy, Iraq imposed sanctions on the region. It limited oil and food supplies brought there. To make matters worse, the Kurds were also suffering from the UN sanctioned embargo on Iraq. Pressure mounted on Kurdistan's main political parties, the political, politically centrist KDP and the center-left PUK. Elections in 1992 resulted in neither side having a majority, with only a difference of two seats between them. Two years following the election, armed clashes broke out between the PUK and KDP in May 1994. This sparked a three-year civil war in the region, and the PUK was supported by Iran and the Turkish-based Kurdish Workers' Party, while the KDP were supported by Turkey and, to an extent, by Saddam. I mean, as much as Saddam would support Kurds. In the end, no side made any gains, and the United States stepped in to broker peace. The Washington Agreement established a ceasefire and set up two Kurdish regional governments, one in Ibril, and led by the KDP, and another in Suleimania, led by the PUK. The agreement also denied allowing the PKK, using Iraqi Kurdistan as a base of operations, and all Iraqi forces would withdraw from the region again. <laughs> <laughs> and the Iraqis are like, but we just got back in there. Yeah, yeah. Again? Fuck. Yeah, fine. We just, I'm sorry, we just wandered there. I don't know how it happened. Furthermore, Iraq agreed to the Oil for Food program offered by the UN. This increased Kurdish Kurdish revenue and overall improved standard of living. However, many still held deep contempt towards the Saddam regime, and it seems it would be only time before the Kurds, it would only be a matter of time until the Kurds once again rebelled. Still a lot of tension in the region. Probably a good, definitely a good place to put the the, the bookmark. Yep. Because... This is, really, this is really part one, I guess. Of Yeah, we will be doing... Well, this is part one. I guess part two will be 9-11, which we're doing in September. Yeah. 20 years since that happened. Jesus wild. Christ, I'm fucking old. It's wild, eh? Yeah, so... Yeah, I guess consider part two to be 9-11, because... Yeah. It's unofficial part two, I guess. Yeah. Should we do the fuck faces? Yeah, let's do the fuck faces. Cue the music. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. What was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Some men aren't looking for anything logical. Some men just want to watch the world burn. So who are our fuckfaces in Chile? Well, I nominate Saddam Hussein, obviously. Obviously. And Chemical Ali. Chemical Ali, yeah. Is there anybody? Khomeini? Does Khomeini go on the list? He'll be on there soon, I'm sure. I feel like we'll talk about him. We'll talk about him again. But yeah, so Saddam, probably obvious. He was a brutal dictator, really ordered harsh treatment of the Kurds, ordered chemical weapons attacks on the Kurds, used chemical warfare during the Iran-Iraq war, which was against, pretty sure against the Geneva Convention. Um, Most likely. Yeah. Invaded Kuwait without... Good reason, in my opinion, at least. And apparently the whole coalition's opinion. Say that there's um, a whole coalition who agrees with you. Yeah, yeah. And Chemical Ali, because he was a scumbag yeah. who beat the, who liberally used <coughs> chemical weapons against Kurds and Iranians and beat, like actually got involved in the torture of detained people. And it's yeah. on film. I I feel like these two definitely deserve a place in the top 10. I think so too. Easily. Like I'm looking at the list right now and 
I think they actually really slot in around that like Bagaswara Ratko Mladic level. Personally, yeah, no, I could see that. Yeah, unless you, you I'm, a... I'm, I think that's a perfect place to put them. Would you put them like one right after the other, or do you think? Uh, I feel like because I, I personally say... feel like I feel like personally I would probably put Saddam at third after Stalin, and then probably Begaswara again, and then like. I would personally keep Begaswara at third, and then Saddam, yeah. and then Mladic, and then Chemical Ali. Yeah. I, that's how. That's where I would put it. Yeah. Okay. That's where I would put them. I think I can. Yeah, I can get behind that. Okay. Cool. So Saddam is number four, and then Mladic drops to five. Chemical Ali slots in at six, which drops the Ceausescu family to number seven. I'm good with that. And races, uh, and that drops Bin Laden to eight, uh, Abdullah Yusuf Azam to nine, John A. McDonald to ten, and uh, bumped out of the top ten is Hans Kamler. Yeah, I can get behind that. Alrighty, so. so let me see here. I lied, actually. I'm sorry. Uh, Sir John A. drops out of the top ten. So our new top ten is uh, Hitler, Stalin, Begaswara, Hussein, Mladic, Chemical Ali, Karadzic, Ceausescu, Bin Laden, Yusuf Azam, and that's our top ten. Okay. The one thing I will, I'll, I'll have to say about Saddam, and I, it's one of those things where it's like I don't like having to admit this, but as feature history said, Saddam became the devil we knew yeah and for all of his brutality and everything he kept iraq relatively stable he kept the islamic groups out of iraq and honestly had the u.s actually properly supported these uprisings saddam would have been gone from an actual iraqi-led uprising yeah iraqis slash kurdish uprising kurdistan iraqi kurdistan might have been either more autonomous now than it is or actually its own country we don't know i mean so many there's so many outcomes from the potential uprisings like who knows that there still wouldn't be con there'd still be conflict i'm sure yeah um, and like there's a lot of, like the way i'm seeing it is that the, they're saying the same kind of rhetoric about that they said about Saddam, about uh, about uh, Assad, mm-hmm. and that really kind of scares me because I'm like, you know what, Saddam, like I agree, Assad needs to go, he mm-hmm. needs to be gone. But what you guys have been doing in the region mm-hmm. has just destabilized it, and 100%. it's just begun gonna, it's just completely become a, a second Iraq yeah. war. So, I mean, it, like here's and the other thing is like the truth is, is that. If Saddam were still in power, would, would there have been ISIS? Probably not. Probably not. Al-Qaeda probably wouldn't have taken off in Iraq. Al-Qaeda and Saddam hated each other. And that's always been the irony to me, I guess, of the Iraq war is that, like, people... Well, it's not really the irony, I guess. It just highlights the stupidity of most people. Uh, or not. <sighs> stupidity is actually a pretty strong word. I would say just the ignorance of people because most people just don't understand this region. I mean, frankly, I don't really understand this region. There's a lot has happened. <laughs> um... I understand why it's complex and why it's complex, but I guess the thing that always just like kind of bugs me or like, I don't know. It's just the really highlights the ignorance of people is how people always claim that, you know, we're going to Iraq to fight Al Qaeda. And it's like, yeah, but Saddam hated Al Qaeda. Like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like you claim they were supporting each other, but Al Qaeda, one of Al Qaeda's yeah. goals was to get him your, out. Uh, your math ain't adding up there, fam, because. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, I, I, you can basically put Al Qaeda and 
Saddam in the same category. I mean, neither was good. No. Like, let's be... Um, let's not say... Not to say that, like, Saddam was better than Al-Qaeda, but... Yeah, and he, my... It's just that, that that argument was just always stupid. Yeah, and my point is that I'm not saying Iraq was better... With Saddam. With I mean... In a way, it kind of was. Like, yeah. it wasn't the clusterfuck it is now, unfortunately. <coughs> but the truth is, like, the true thing is that Saddam needed to be toppled by Iraqis, not mm-hmm. by Western powers. Agreed. And it's like, look at what happened with Libya. Like, Western powers intervened. And and I've heard that argument a lot, actually, too, in the wake of, like, Syria and Libya. Is that, like, you know, sure, they were shitty dictators, but... People did generally, a lot of people did generally prosper under them. Like, I mean, um, Damascus, like Syria had a very, like, strong society, I guess. Yeah. Really, before. You know, they were very developed, they were quite developed and very, like, had a very well-developed society and functioning society and whatever. And, like, it's not to say that Assad's not awful because he's terrible. Yeah. But, I mean, it was stable and people, you know, they had a good education system. They had good blah, blah, you know, et cetera. And then now, you know, it's war torn and everyone's left it's just it's awful and so i've heard that argument a lot where it's like yeah they were terrible but at least it was stable yeah um british politician george galloway he's kind of he's a hard like kind of a hardline left-wing guy very controversial character if you want to see why just look look him up (laughs) um one of the few things i agree with george galloway about is that he said if uh syria were to go into an election today Assad would win in a landslide, yeah. like legitimately, because compared to who else, like the other fighters that are out there, like the only other, the only group I really support there are like me personally are the Syrian Kurds. Yeah. Because they actually have a relatively stable, a semi-autonomous The Kurdish state. populations in all of these places are really the only real, like, yeah, they've always, they've, yeah. Yeah. Like the, the Syrian opposition is now flooded with like the Islamic fundamentalists, fundamentalists and whatnot. I mean, that was kind of Assad's fault because he let he let all these prisoners out that were yeah um, that were hardcore. But yeah, so I guess we'll talk more about that when we talk about Iraq eventually. But um, that's that's the Persian Gulf War. It's <sighs> been a ooh, that was a long one. Um, just so we have four episodes left. What we're gonna do is we're gonna leave a poll on our on facebook and on twitter Twitter. i'll just make a poll and then like send the link like we'll post the link and whatnot um and then you vote we'll uh put the like we'll put the last videos that are up there and we want you to vote on which ones you want this like which ones you want to see whoever gets the the whoever gets whichever one gets the most votes that will be the first episode we do after this and then second most votes will be second video so on and so forth that ma- I hope that makes sense to A people. video or episode? Episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got to stop doing that. But, uh, yeah. So we'll do that and uh, close out the season. But with that, uh, let's call it a night. Yeah, I don't have a interesting fact because I think you guys are <laughs> pretty overwhelmed as it is. I'm facted yeah. out. Anyway, but, yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. Go check out our Patreon for the new episode. Uh, yeah, consider supporting us if you can. Uh, follow us on social media at Panhistoria Podcast on Instagram and at Panhistoria Pod on Twitter. We told Kevin you would. Don't don't make don't, don't make us lie. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, on that note, I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. Thank you guys so much. Good night.